Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, and here to lead you through these hard times, Data, with an expanded edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is not only here this week to deliver your WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview as scheduled. We have a ton of fallout to discuss from the retirement of Vincent Kennedy McMahon, including major news breaking Monday morning that will change WWE and hopefully the entire professional wrestling industry for the better. There is so much to unpack from the last week in WWE. The Silver King is not wasting a minute here as we begin this episode, like every episode of Getting Over, by reminding you that this podcast is so please stop making me ask. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a written review for getting over. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, why you subscribe, and tell them exactly why they should do the same. Those ratings, those reviews are so helpful in helping us grow our listenership. And that, of course, is what this is all about. Even cooler is every time we get a new five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we read them right here on the show. And wouldn't you know it, after a little poking and prodding from the Silver King the last couple of weeks, we got three. So let me run through those for you right now. Another reason to listen from Jay Martinez 2104. I really appreciate a podcast when they take the effort to look at all the angles of a story. Adam and Chris do an awesome job at looking at wrestling companies, good, bad, and ugly. I feel I can be a part of the conversation when listening, which makes it my favorite podcast to listen to. Thanks for the great work, guys. Thank you, Jay Martinez, for the great review. All About the Five from Marcus Aaron. Definitely the best wrestling podcast out there. Been listening ever since the Silver King made the switch. Y'all both do great work. Keep doing y'all's thing. Also, Raw Underground was more entertaining than SmackDown currently is. Okay, that's pretty funny. Thank you very much, Marcus, for the kind words. And last, certainly not least, great show exclamation point from Full Metal McCoy. Been following the Silver King since his ITC SOC days and love his insights into wrestling. He and Vintage Chris Vanini have great chemistry. And while the episodes can be a little too long sometimes, it's because they delve into everything like no other wrestling podcast does, recommended for any wrestling fan out there. I love uh, that review from you, Full Metal McCoy. Really appreciate it. Let me tell you all something. A little spoiler alert. If you haven't looked at the timestamps on today's episode, uh, this is maybe going to be our longest show ever, or at least one of the longest shows ever. So buckle in because we have an absolute ton to talk about. I appreciate all those five-star ratings and reviews. Thank you guys so much. Please also do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. We will have a WWE SummerSlam pre-show live on Twitter Spaces, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Saturday before that show. So every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That way you can join in the conversation. We open up the mics. You guys can ask questions, provide comments, and of course, listen to our final predictions as we preview SummerSlam. We also tweet every single show as soon as it goes live. We tweet live during all the major wrestling shows. And of course, if you want to participate in our pre and post show polls, you can do that as well by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Really quick, just a chain of events for the rest of the week so you guys all know what's coming up. 
On Thursday, we will have our normal AEW and NXT show. We will also talk about Ring of Honor, Death Before Dishonor on that episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We'll be back Saturday with the live pre-show on Twitter Spaces that I just mentioned. And then WWE SummerSlam Instant Analysis Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. Given there is no telling what will happen in WWE these days, it is technically possible that we could have an emergency episode Friday night after SmackDown, given that is the official go-home show for SummerSlam. But as of right now, we don't expect there to be any changes. Even if a match is added to the card, we'll just go over that in that live pre-show on Twitter Spaces. So no need to worry about that. But a jam-packed week, plenty of content coming your way, not just through the rest of the week, but on today's show. In a moment, we will open this show with the main event where we will discuss the fallout from Vince McMahon's retirement, as I mentioned, including Paul Levesque being elevated to head of creative for WWE. Next will be the good, the bad, and the ugly, where we'll cover everything from this week in WWE that is not part of SummerSlam. And of course, we will wrap with the SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. All three segments will have timestamps in our episode description in case you're listening to us later in the week closer to SummerSlam. That way you can jump around to the part that you need to listen to at the appropriate time. But we truly hope you're locked in with us for the entire show today. Now, when I say us, I mostly mean me because while Vintage Chris Vanini does join us on the show for the SummerSlam Ultimate Preview, which takes up the entire second half of the show, due to some scheduling conflicts, he is not with us for these opening two sections. The Silver King will be riding solo. But the good news is I have so much to say about Triple H being elevated into creative, uh, and I answered more than a dozen of your questions and comments about that very topic. So there is so much content on today's show. It's already going to be super long, one of our longest episodes ever. I think it might be a three or four hour show of Vintage was with the Silver King for the entire program. Now, before I get into the rest of the show, and there is plenty to talk about, I do want to tell you guys, it more like admit something to you guys, a little bit of a secret. My passion for wrestling, professional wrestling, this sports entertainment genre that we know and love so much, it really has dissipated over the last few weeks due to a mix of the creative that we're getting from WWE and AEW, a significant lack of excitement for SummerSlam, and a ton of special events that created extra work during a time that is supposed to be my off-season. Literally, last week was my vacation and I ended up doing podcast work. And it's not that I was thinking about ending the podcast as much as I was just kind of reevaluating my passion and my emotional investment in pro wrestling. And then the last 10 days happened. Personally, I celebrated a birthday. Like I said, I went on a short trip. And then in wrestling, there were rumors of TV 14 changes to WWE. Vince McMahon retired. And now all of a sudden, Paul Levesque is head of creative. The latter of which is something that I have been trying to speak into reality for six or seven years to this point. I mean, any long-term listeners of the old podcast in this corner, State of Combat, the ones I was on, you know the phrase we would use constantly, give trips the book. That's what we used to say. And all of a sudden, Monday morning, I wake up, come out of the bathroom, checking my phone, and there it is directly right in front of me. Paul Levesque is head of creative for WWE. So to say that I have been rejuvenated, it's actually an understatement. I feel like I've taken 
one of those NZT pills from Limitless. Like my mind is racing at the possibilities of what can happen now, not just in WWE, but in the industry as a whole. And I'm suddenly pretty damn jacked up about the future of WWE, where kind of coming into SummerSlam, you know, Chris and I had said plenty of times, there's not a good build for the show. It'll probably end up being a good premium live event because WWE has delivered on those for the better part of the last two or three years. But there just wasn't a lot of juice. Now, all of a sudden, there's juice. No pulp, just pure, unadulterated juice and excitement for what is now possible in WWE and AEW and the entire industry as a whole. So with that said, I wanted to give you guys almost a level set from where my head was, you know, coming into this week and then coming into this show. With all of that now said, I don't want to waste any time. We have a load of stuff to talk about here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And the way we start that on Tuesdays is by sliding into the main event. Now, the overall topic of this week's main event is additional fallout from Vince McMahon's retirement. There are reports that he's being investigated now by some government agencies for the alleged payments. We could get into the drips and drabs of that. I'm going to go ahead and save it for next week because I want to see what develops there. And there is so much still to talk about, about Stephanie McMahon, a little bit about Brock Lesnar, and primarily Paul Levesque, Triple H, becoming head of creative in WWE, that I don't want to take up so much time in what's already a packed episode talking about business stuff. We'll save that for next week when we will have a little bit more of an open show coming out of SummerSlam uh, without much else to talk about rather than that first Raw after SummerSlam. So to begin this edition of the main event, I just want to talk about the segment that opened SmackDown. Stephanie McMahon was in the ring. She announced Vince's retirement from WWE. Fans booed initially, booing the fact that he retired. Before she said Vince wished that he could have been there to thank all of them in person, they chanted, thank you, Vince, which made Stephanie react because she had scripted them to do that later in the segment. Steph then led the thank you, Vince chant, looked into the camera and said, I love you, dad. Michael Cole and Pat McAfee put the night over as historic. And then the Street Profits entered to a really big pop. They came in from the crowd kind of to just like, reset the show, get away from the sadness, or at least on WWE's part, the sadness, and move on to the program itself. I just couldn't help but, you know, see this and say say to myself, Steph really should have known, given all of her experience in the ring with a live mic over decades, to not cut off an organic chant to do the same chant planned one minute later. She easily could have just adapted on the spot. Now, as far as other people being mad that fans chanted, thank you, Vince. Oh, WWE fans are so stupid. They don't care. Of course they care about all the allegations. I understand the criticism, but the guy ran this company for 40 years, and that's why they were saying thank you. They weren't saying thank you to the person, Vince McMahon. They were saying thank you to the guy who, because of creative and because of his position and his foresight into what would become in in media and in sports, was able to produce a company and and a product that people have watched for decades with their children and grandchildren. It's really not hard to kind of separate those two things in your mind and understand why a venue full of people would chant thank you Vince when they learn that Vince is no longer going to be part of the product. So save me the, the bullshit of, oh, the fans are so stupid. No, they were reacting to that part of it. 
that, hey, this guy that did a lot for us as fans is no longer going to be there. And we want to say thank you. The canned manufactured chant from Stephanie, that was more insulting to me than when the fans did it organically at the start. So I just wanted to kind of say that and get that out there. I also want to go back to Friday's show because on Friday's uh, instant reaction episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, a special show that we taped when it was announced that Vince McMahon was retiring. And if you have not heard that episode, you really should go back because we did 45 minutes on Vince McMahon retiring and what it means for the future of WWE, topics that I'm not really going to cover outside of a creative standpoint on this episode. I don't want to repeat ourselves, but on that instant reaction episode, we did mention reports at the time we taped before SmackDown that Brock Lesnar reportedly walked out of the building hours before SmackDown, allegedly saying something like, if he's gone, I'm gone, referring to Vince. That immediately put his availability for the show and for SummerSlam up in the air, and we discussed that thoroughly. What the hell could WWE do? The reports of Lesnar leaving, first from Brian Alvarez and then confirmed by numerous others, they really seemed out of character for Brock, as I said at the time. He's a 45-year-old businessman who has no significant reason to distrust WWE, even without Vince. I don't doubt that Brock left the arena, but my prevailing theory here is that it was blowing off steam rather than a threat of not working. If I had to guess, and it is just a guess, I'm not reporting anything. I'm guessing Lesnar was angry that he was not informed about the announcement before it became public. And he probably felt like with his position and his importance in the company, he would have known that before everyone else did and been emotionally prepared and not just blindsided by it. Now, PW Insider reported that the original plan was Lesnar opening the show. So if booking did change, it's hard to say that it wasn't an improvement because Lesnar coming in at the end of the show and kicking Theory's ass, which we'll talk about later, it was really great TV. So assuming Lesnar did leave, WWE executed this perfectly by saving him until the final five minutes and no one leaking that he returned to the arena. I may not be excited for the SummerSlam rematch main event, but Lesnar did pop me in that moment far more than I expected because it was a surprise element rather than one that was kind of manufactured. Now, not to bury the lead here, but the major news that was announced Monday that we are now about to talk about at length here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is Paul Levesque, better known to many as Triple H, being formally elevated to the role of head of creative for WWE in addition to his role as executive vice president of talent relations. Suffice it to say, folks, this is monumental news. It is something, as I mentioned earlier, I have been begging to happen for the last six or seven years, and the time is here. It has finally arrived. Trips got the book. It almost does not feel real. And because of that, there is so much to cover 
so much to discuss that I don't want to wait any longer. I want to dive into every single facet of this right now, which is exactly what we're going to do. And then on the back end, I have more than a dozen questions and comments from you, our Getting Overhead listeners that sent them to us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, and I am going to answer all of them right now, right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. First, to go over what we said Friday, Paul was able to shift back into talent relations from global talent strategy. That was a position change that he was given prior to, of course, his ailment, his uh, cardiac arrest. It was a reduction in responsibilities. It also kind of led him away from NXT as that product changed. This also comes, by the way, this elevation into executive vice president of talent relations and now head of WWE creative. It comes on the heels of Paul recently announcing his full-time return to WWE after working in partial capacity for a long time while recovering. Now, the talent role is one where we know Paul has thrived both in recruiting and development. The problem was always transitioning the talent from NXT to the main roster under Vince. Well, guess who's not there anymore to kind of screw up that transition or take people who we really like the way they're built and their gimmicks and stuff and then completely change them on the main roster? Vince is not there to do that anymore. Now, a huge part of that job is going to be Paul having final say in the WWE roster, which means we should expect that a lot of the past dumbfounding decisions, especially when it comes to releases like Swerve, Keith Lee, Dakota Kai, those types of high quality releases, we should expect to happen less often or perhaps not at all. It also means a more consistent transition of talent from NXT to the main roster and hopefully better relations between the talent and the company itself, which could prevent issues like what we're seeing with Sasha Banks and Naomi. The major lingering question coming out of Vince McMahon's retirement and even Triple H's elevation into EVP of talent was creative. And that answer came Monday with Paul being made head of the creative department. This is not a job that he handled by himself in NXT, and it's not one that he is going to dominate like Vince on the main roster, though he certainly is going to have final say over the two most forward-facing areas of the company, talent and creative. My expectation, as I mentioned Friday, was that Bruce Pritchard would stay on board and he will indeed remain the head writer, according to Dave Meltzer. That's actually a positive for continuity. Bruce is creative. He's capable. I could also see a situation where someone like Paul Heyman could get an enhanced role beyond the bloodline storyline, which he's mostly handled over the last couple of years, as could people Triple H trusted that were once with him in NXT. Now, some of them are still with the company. Many of them were fired and released as part of that bloodletting to NXT as they made the transition to 2.0. One unfortunate consequence of those firings, of course, in addition to people losing their jobs, is that a lot of them got hired elsewhere. Now, that's great for them personally, and I'm very happy for them, but it means they're not available to be part of the regime that Paul Levesque was indeed building. He was building like a shadow creative team where if a change was ever made, they would kind of step right into that role. So they're not really there anymore. And on top of all of that, the most notable person under the Paul Triple H NXT regime, who's no longer with WWE, is William Regal, who would obviously have been kept on board and given significant influence 
across the product, probably not just NXT, but main roster as well. I would expect some reassignments internally. I would expect other names to get brought back. But in the end, we're not going to exactly know the way creative is formed until Triple H is in the position for a number of months and is able to kind of shake things out. Now, this change also comes at a key juncture. With SummerSlam four days away at the time of this podcast being taped, we hate how rematch heavy the card was built. But given the circumstances, it actually does kind of provide clearly defined endpoints for some pretty important feuds. Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, Bianca Belair and Becky Lynch, maybe even the bloodline in totality, and other rematches that we've already seen previously. If not endpoints, it at least creates an area where progression can be made that a new foot could be taken, a new step could be taken starting next Monday, the Raw after SummerSlam. So from a booking standpoint, I don't expect that we're going to see any drastically notable changes through this week. And there's a possibility we don't see anything drastically change through Crown Jewel. It may not even be until after WrestleMania 39 that we look at the product and say, wow, this is drastically different or at least clearly different in certain areas than it was a year ago. That is going to require patience, both from fans and from critics of the product, just as we've done with other massive changes in WWE, AEW, NXT. We can't deliver final rulings on successes or failures, improvements or deteriorations until enough time has passed to give a legitimate evaluation, especially because we don't know everything happening behind the scenes with talent and their contracts, health, availability, all of those things. So anyone who expected drastic changes to come Monday during Raw was unrealistic. But there are tweaks and adjustments I think we might notice in the short term. Promos that aren't as scripted, fewer shitty finishes to matches, more ring time, some wrestlers being used more often than they were previously, continuity in storylines with longer term booking, not long term, just longer term. And if the TV 14 switch does happen, then more realistic and believable language in promos, which we did see a lot of Monday night from Roman Reigns and even Chad Gable. And there were a couple other people who the way they spoke, it just seemed less rehearsed, less scripted, more relaxed. Even commentary, we can expect to be better from an addition by subtraction standpoint. Not having Vince McMahon yelling in your ear or giving you direction, whether there's someone else in there or not, Kevin Dunn has been known to do that before, just not to the level that Vince has. Or Triple H certainly has the ability to speak to commentary in that position. Um, But not having Vince there, it's an addition by subtraction situation where they are just going to be more loose and realistic. And we, again, did see that Monday night. There was a lot of just chatter between the three guys like friends might talk while in the middle of doing commentary for professional wrestling. So there are a lot of simple tweaks that can be made to improve creative without doing wholesale adjustments to the product. As far as how this projects long-term, that remains to be seen. Triple H is not going to put black and gold NXT on the main roster. And we should not want that. Sure, it's the wrestling that I've loved the most over the last 15 years, but it's not what WWE's core audience wants. And WWE is doing great right now in terms of ticket sales, ratings. They are hot. WWE is actually 
growing a little bit by a little bit, especially coming out of a really tough period of time where they had a lot of competition with sports and news and things like that. Obviously, there is room for improvement, especially in the product that we get creatively on TV. But WWE, while it makes those changes and adjustments, it has to make sure it does not drive away its core viewers by turning hardcore on a dime. And most important to all of this is I think Paul Levesque knows that. I see no proof that he has designs on implementing drastic changes, even if the real NXT 2.0, that heavy metal shit that we got at the tail end of the black and gold NXT after it started losing consistently to AEW, it kind of really moved in that direction. What I mentioned earlier are the keys to this entire thing. If they can put more quality wrestling on TV, make the wrestlers sound more realistic, modern, present day, develop continuity, the product will drastically improve even without major adjustments. And those major adjustments still could eventually come in time. One other thing we can look for is that talent usage will be a key indicator. Will we see Finn Balor pushed as a main eventer? Will Champa get his just due? Will Io Shirai re-sign and get called up? Is it possible that Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae now return to WWE with the opportunity for Johnny to become that next Daniel Bryan, as I've mentioned many times before? Will guys like Mustafa Ali, Chad Gable, Cedric Alexander, Dijak, are they going to start getting TV time and built up into characters that we actually care about. Despite all of the talent that WWE has lost, Brian Danielson, Cesaro, Adam Cole, despite all of their idiotic releases, Swerve, Keith Lee, Bray Wyatt, Dakota Kai, I could go on. Their roster is still absolutely loaded, nowhere near as loaded as it used to be, still loaded with talent as long as it's managed well. And that is now in the hands of a guy who proved he was able to manage NXT's talent and its creative almost perfectly. There were situations, sure, like Keith Lee, where he didn't get on TV right away, but that's because they were in the middle of other shit. And once Keith Lee did get on TV, he got a rocket strapped to his back. And that's exactly the type of stuff that I think we're gonna see from WWE going forward. Lastly, before I do get to your DM slides, comments, questions, Kevin Dunn's future in WWE at this point is absolutely up in the air. He's the executive producer, he's chief of global TV distribution, and he has been for decades. But he's also one of Vince's yes-men who reportedly has significant beef with Paul and Stephanie behind the scenes. WWE does a ton of great things production-wise, and to give him credit, Kevin Dunn, a lot of that is because of him. But the way it presents its in-ring product right now, it's excruciating. This is a domino that could eventually fall and it would have a drastic impact on the product that we get to see that is most frontward facing to us. But it's also something that would probably happen over time. It's not something that I think you should expect to see next week, next month, if Dunn is gone from WWE, the episode after he's gone. Those are changes that will have to happen over time. Now, folks, I could do two hours alone on Paul moving into the head of creative role, but we have so much show left. So let's get to all your questions. Then we will address it further next week when Vintage Chris Vanini rejoins the entire show. We'll give him a chance to kind of break down his deep thoughts on Triple H. So I'm going to get to all the DM slides right now. Sam, I don't know if this is street or saint, it's ST, at Sam Hiko underscore. Wow, Gargano waited it out long enough. Look forward to his main roster debut. Ha ha. You laugh, but as long as he has not signed elsewhere already, and that is the biggest key, 
that Johnny Gargano has not signed elsewhere. As long as that has not happened, I now 90% expect him back in WWE. There is the Twitch streaming situation to figure out, but they can make that work. This move could position Gargano into a huge babyface role. Like I said, the modern day Daniel Bryan, I've said it numerous times, he has the same type of IWC momentum, and now he would be coming back from a year off, throw him in at the Royal Rumble, let him build main roster fans. WrestleMania 40, you could be looking at a potential title winner if Johnny Gargano comes back to WWE. Sweet Lou at Lewis underscore Veraldi. Do you think Sasha and Naomi come back now? That depends on two factors. One, their current status. Two, whether the other person who reportedly gave them shit besides Vince is still in a position of power. If that was John Laurinaitis, obviously he's gone. If it was someone else, they might still be there. Multiple people have said Sasha and Naomi have been released, yet there is nothing official about it from them or from WWE. And I don't think that would be something that everyone would want silent so that they would make a surprise appearance on AEW. As long as they have not signed with AEW already, and I gave you my conspiracy theory about that a couple of weeks ago, I would say there's a really good chance that they come back. The Paul-Sasha relationship and the Naomi bloodline stuff, it's just too strong to discount the possibility of them returning. This is a relationship that can be prepared and money talks, bullshit walks. The bullshit walked out the door on Friday. So it would be a really good win for WWE and for Paul Levesque starting in this role if he's able to work them back. Mr. Leon at Rudy Leon, what three talents would you be most excited if they were brought back? Uh, So, okay, I'm gonna focus on people who were released and people who are not in AEW because they can't come back right away. So Johnny Gargano doesn't count because he let his contract expire and we don't know what's up with Sasha Banks and Naomi exactly. So again, we're talking about people who were released. Bray Wyatt, Dakota Kai, Bronson Reed. You gotta realize that nearly all the quality releases have been signed by AEW. Now, if you include people who are in AEW, Beyond those that I just mentioned that I think could theoretically return to WWE, I would say Aleister Black, Swerve, and Tony Storm. Those are three that I'd love to have back in WWE. But again, Tony Storm seemed really dissatisfied. Um, and But Aleister Black and Swerve are both people I think could eventually make their way back now that Triple H is in charge. Marcus Russell at big underscore M84. How many AEW wrestlers will jump to WWE now that Triple H is running things? Well, you know, the, their contracts have to end first. And many of them are still signed to AEW for multi-year deals. But Paul does have a lot of goodwill with the NXT people who are over there and their coworkers and peers. They all talk. You have to remember that. Just like any other industry, people talk. WWE's talent department is suddenly a lot more attractive than it was a week ago. And you say, man, what if this happened six months ago and Adam Cole could have just re-signed with WWE and Kyle O'Reilly could have stayed? Coulda, woulda, shoulda. That's not the situation that we're in. When Adam Cole's contract in AEW comes up, if Trips has the book in WWE still and creative is going well, it'd be pretty tough to expect Adam Cole not to come back to WWE, given what he did previously. Uh, Marcus also asked, do you think Paul Heyman will get his position back? as executive director or any backstage role since Vince is gone. I did slightly address this earlier. I do think it's a possibility that he gets more responsibility backstage. He's well-liked by Stephanie and obviously Paul gets along with him well. Loser Kid Lego at Loser Kid Lego. Oh, hopefully this is the end of bad name changes. Maybe Riddle and Theory can get their first names back. 
That's actually unlikely that it's the end of bad name changes because that's all coming from legal and marketing. They want to copyright and trademark these names and they're unable to do that when people use their real names, even parts of their real names. You know, uh, Austin is Theory's real first name. So if they can do it a little bit differently, maybe change people's first names instead of removing their first names, maybe there's something that can be done, but I would not expect this to be the end of name and gimmick changes. Marcus at M underscore Harrison, H-A-R-A-Z-I-N. Does Triple H give back the good entrance music to everyone who had their themes replaced with generic music? Again, no, because that was a rights issue. There was a deal that WWE had with the CFOs that expired and um, their management or production company wanted royalties every time the songs were used. So WWE is phasing them out. But what I do think could happen is that we see a concentration on better music with lyrics coming out of WWE when they introduce new people. So I do think the music will improve. I don't know that the old themes are coming back. Don't expect that. Uh, John Dumphy at John Dumphy 68. How does this affect NXT 2.0? And could we see a shift back towards the black and gold era? One thing I think could happen is we might see more of a focus on the veteran talent in NXT holding the titles and the younger talent challenging to get put over and then move up the ladder rather than the young talent holding the titles. In Triple H's NXT, Braun Breaker never would have been world champion that fast. Probably still wouldn't be, even today. The Creeds are an example of building young stars the right way. They toiled in the tag team division for a while. They lost opportunities. They eventually won their way up. And when there was an opportunity for the title to be changed and for it to make sense for them to have them, they went ahead and made the title change. But yeah, Braun Breaker being pushed so quickly onto a title really just was something that didn't make sense, especially given all of the other big names in that company that could have been in that position, even with Champa being moved up to the main roster. So that is one thing I think you'll see change. 2.0, I think it'll mostly remain the same in that we'll see the colors and the environment of it will probably be similar. But I wouldn't be surprised if we get a hybrid of 2.0 and black and gold NXT, which that hybrid is really what black and gold NXT was at the very beginning of its introduction, where it was truly developmental, but it was also a place where talent could be signed to kind of lead the company while the younger people developed. And I think they could possibly go back to that methodology. And if they do, NXT will be better off because of it. Nizer at jnizer17, he said, for the talent that left got released, do you think this will kickstart a lot of returns? It's not, they're not gonna load expenses onto the main roster, WWE. But I do think choice signings could happen. Those already in AEW, like I said earlier, they're likely already under multi-year deals. So don't expect to see people like Athena, Andrade, those people back anytime soon, unless they request their releases and get them. But I do think that there are possibly people out there, Dakota Kai, Tegan Knox. Uh, who could get brought back. And it would be pretty cool if they were and added to the women's division. Brett Charles Malam at Brett underscore Malam. Do you think this changes SummerSlam booking outcomes or since the PLE is so close, it's sort of the last throws of McMahon's creative and they'll do a restart the week after. I don't think there's gonna be any restart, quote unquote, per se. Gradual adjustments. SummerSlam booking, it's tough to determine because we don't know what the plans were. If Liv Morgan retains and the Street Profits win, do we assume that's Triple H? What if that was the plan all along? My guess is everything plays out as it was mostly planned through Saturday. And then Monday is when we see 
the direction, especially from the mid card and low card, when we see a little more of Triple H's touches on those things. Joe at Burners, he froze. He says, uh, do you want WWE main roster to go full black and gold for me? I still want the main roster to have its own flavor. Give me Attitude Era shows, 2000 specifically, larger than life characters involved in fun storylines that pay off. Want is a good question because you asked what I want. No, I don't. I actually agree with you. The main roster needs to have its own flavor. It needs to basically be what it is. Attitude Era, it really isn't the answer either. Modern, fresh, and relatable stories with enough content that attracts kids, teenagers, and adults without insulting anyone's intelligence. For example, Drew McIntyre's sword snapping the top rope and fire coming out of the ring post. Get rid of shit like that. I'd like to see NXT be a 50-50 mix of black and gold and 2.0, as I said, to go back to what NXT was really prior to the USA Network. But for the main roster, it really should largely remain the same. It should just be a much better version of what we are currently getting. Scoops at EJ Maroon. What do you think is ideal? A, Triple H as head of talent relations only. B, Triple H as head of creative only. C, Triple H as head of both talent relations and creative. I think he's spreading himself too thin, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Head of talent and creative, so your C option there, is ideal because then the left hand always knows what the right hand is doing. He's overseeing the departments. He's not micromanaging them like Vince did. Bruce is the lead writer. Triple H will probably hire or find a talent director. The key is one person being in charge of the major decisions across both departments, who is going to be on the roster and who is booked and how they're booked. That's the role that Triple H is stepping into. And I don't think he's going to work himself thin or tired or ragged because he is coming off the health scare and because he is not Vince McMahon. Not everyone needs to lord over everything the way Vince did. And by the way, the way Tony Khan does now. Tony Khan may have input from people, but he is booking all of AEW and Ring of Honor largely himself. That is not really sustainable. It's not. So I do think Triple H, seeing how this has worked for decades, is going to have a better approach at the entire thing. Uber Noodle at UB3RN00D13. Thank you for that. Um, Do you think folks getting pushed or featured right now, Lashley, Theory, Rose, just to randomly name a few, will be negatively affected by Trips being head of creative? It's a really good question. I don't think anyone will be negatively affected. It's more about who will be positively affected. And I mentioned some of those names earlier. Brian at BRYEN64. Which underutilized talents, in your opinion, will benefit most from Triple H being head of creative? Finn, Ricochet, and Champa come to mind right away. Finn Balor is number one on the list. He's back in contention as a future world champion, or at least someone who is consistently treated like a main eventer and an upper mid-carder. He's number one. Yes, Champa's there. Uh, Johnny Gargano, if he comes back. A lot of the women that are slightly underutilized do drop. Changing her name, making her Piper Nevin again. You know, those are things that I think we will see. Uh, a lot of that type of talent be put in better positions. Alex Ballmeyer at Ballmeyer 11. What would you set as the over-under for number of years that Triple H is in that position? Look, it's impossible to say given his health situation, but even if WWE was to get sold in that reality, I doubt upper management would change. So let's just wish Triple H the best possible health and the best possible luck in this role. I don't want to talk about how long someone will be in a role like that. And Nizer, I guess you came in twice, Nizer at J Nizer 17. I want to say they'd never do it, but with Triple H at the helm, what do you think 
they would ever do to throw Tamina in with the bloodline. I've always liked factions with a female involved and it would be huge for her career. Tamina's career is almost over. I mean, she I'm not dissing her in any in any way. She's a valuable member of the roster and she does good work still with some of the women. But throwing her with the bloodline, it doesn't help her, it doesn't hurt anyone. It, the bloodline, it's okay the way it is. If they want to enhance it, you have Solo Sokoa lose a title match on NXT and then get called up to the main roster. You add him into the fold, especially if Reigns loses the title and takes time off. That allows the bloodline to continue with three members and Paul Heyman while Reigns is not there. So, you know, I don't know exactly what they're going to do with the bloodline, but Tamina, that's not the answer. And I don't think Triple H would be doing that. So folks, look, I I wanted to go as in-depth as I possibly could about Triple H being moved into this role as head of creative. There is so much for us even still to talk about regarding this move, what it means for the future of WWE. But hopefully I gave you as much of an overview as possible in a truncated amount of time. We will touch on this topic again in the coming weeks and months as this continues developing. But there is still plenty of this show left and I wanna get to it. So let's not waste any time by moving into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, SmackDown was a fine show this week. Raw, the first WWE TV show without Vince. It was indeed the best episode of TV we've had since Money in the Bank over the last four weeks. Stories got multiple segments. There was a lot of wrestling and it sold SummerSlam best it could. Dave Meltzer reported the episode was mostly written by Vince last week prior to his resignation. But I find it funny that people think that automatically means it was a normal episode. Let's not forget, Vince often makes changes on the fly the day of TV. And also realize that just because the episode was laid out and planned does not mean there weren't any changes, such as when segments happened, perhaps some of the extra short backstage stuff, the brawl to open the show, how the talent seemed relaxed on the mic, the way commentary came across. It just felt like a different episode of Raw. Not drastically different, 10 to 15% different. And plenty of that, I think, can be attributed to the change in creative who was there backstage leading the show, but also it being in Madison Square Garden and being a go-home show for SummerSlam. You could definitely feel elements of difference, even if from a storyline perspective, it was mostly the same. So just to clarify the good, the bad, and the ugly, we are about to talk about everything that happened this past week in WWE, but as of now does not affect SummerSlam. And our third segment, the WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview, will cover all of that. So the Brawling Brutes held court in the ring on SmackDown. Sheamus said Boston is filled with fake Irish people. He said he won't fight Drew McIntyre in their number one contendership match until the sword is banned. The Brutes were fully clothed. McIntyre then entered in full gear with Angela. It was a very odd juxtaposition seeing them dressed completely different. Butch and Ridge Holland left. McIntyre rostered the sword on the post. Drew asked when Sheamus became such a bitch, given one of them could main event the first United Kingdom show in 30 years. McIntyre said Roman Reigns has the titles held hostage because he never shows up and WWE needs a real champion to restore the prestige, which I thought was a really good line. It also gave away who was going to win the match, but uh, McIntyre told him to have some balls. Sheamus said McIntyre's promo and their history together actually gave him goosebumps and they would fight, just not in Boston. He got heat with you suck chance before saying WWE management set a match for next week with Drew Sword banned. Sheamus announced it would be no disqualification, no count out, a shillelagh match. He also called it an Irish Donnybrook and WWE called it a good old fashioned Irish Donnybrook 18 times. Sheamus then asked Adam Pierce what he thought, and Pierce made it official 
McIntyre then chopped the shillelagh with a, with a sword. He chopped it in half. And this whole thing was going really well until it fell apart. McIntyre's promo was vintage 2020 Drew, the guy WWE built into the biggest baby face in the company. And when he told Sheamus to have some balls, his ass got serious too, which is what we needed here, given the whole thing's been so silly. And then it disintegrated. WWE not knowing what Donnybrook means was a part of it. It's not just a fight between two people. It's an all out chaotic brawl like you would have in the street, a Donnybrook with 50 people just going at it. This is not that. Um, But the other problem was Sheamus said the match was made before asking Pierce to make it official, which is nonsensical. And worst of all, we got Drew with the sword and the fire again. Look, it's the best thing we've gotten so far from the storyline, so I'm saying good. But as I suspected last week, they are putting it on SmackDown instead of SummerSlam, which is idiotic. It's a pay-per-view caliber match, and WWE should want to feature its next number one contender on the major show preceding Clash at the Castle. So silly, it was a lot of silly stuff surrounding a segment that was mostly strong. Shinsuke Nakamura fought Ludwig Kaiser. This was a purposeful rematch from a couple weeks ago with Kaiser needing a win to avoid Gunther's punishment and Nakamura wanting an intercontinental title shot. Kaiser threw Nakamura into the steps at Gunther's urging. Shinsuke hit the sliding powerbomb for a near fall. Gunther got in his face outside and wasn't phased by the taunt. Gunther distracted as he went for as Nakamura went for a Kinshasa, then stuck him in the face behind the referee's back as Kaiser hit a DDT-style move for the win in 10 minutes. After the bell, Gunther yelled at Kaiser because he required help to win. He made Kaiser briefly think he wouldn't punish him before delivering a huge chop to the chest that knocked him down. It was disappointing to have someone who's basically the number one contender lose to the champion's underling, but it was a clear heel cheating interference, so it wasn't really the worst development. Plus, Gunther didn't treat it as a legitimate win in the post-match punishment. Not great by any means, but I will say good. Dolph Ziggler and AJ Styles fought Alpha Academy on Raw. Ziggler explained his recent actions backstage, saying Theory is a great athlete and even handsome but in over his head and undeserving of his accomplishments. Styles came up to agree before Academy defended Theory and it ended up in a match. Chad Gable got a long heel promo talking about Styles and Ziggler being a team thrown together like the Knicks, which hit me in the feel spot as a Knicks fan. Ziggler's hot tag was snuffed out by a huge back elbow from Otis. Gable hit his roll through German suplex, but ate a super kick after missing a moonsault. Ziggler then super kicked Otis to save Styles before catching Gable rolling off Styles back with a zigzag for the win. The Styles-Ziggler team, it was odd, and I hope this was mostly about giving Ziggler a win for his theory storyline instead of establishing a new tag team, because there's really no reason to split the Dirty Dogs, and there's no reason for Styles to be in a tag team, but all aspects of this on Monday, what we got on Raw, they were good. The Viking Raiders fought Jinder Mahal and Shanky. New Day were on one during commentary. Xavier Woods name-dropped Ring of Honor and IWGP as former titles the Raiders had. He also got Michael Cole going to the point that Cole admitted, yeah, I heard you. I've been insulted for 25 years. Amazing stuff. Not amazing? The booking. Ivar threw Mahal into New Day to win via countout in less than two minutes. Another short match, another countout finish. Give me a fucking break. The only reason this was bad instead of ugly was Woods. He was so great on commentary, but the booking was really shitty. Sonya Deville interrupted Pierce backstage to again talk shit about his job performance and how things he booked weren't happening on the show. Pierce said something he planned was actually going to happen, Deville against Raquel Rodriguez, so we got that match. Raquel overpowered Sonya early, 
but DeVille got aggressive and hit a big running knee for a near fall. Raquel then hit a fallaway slam and corkscrew elbow off the ropes for a near fall. Then she stopped a DDT mid-move, only for Sonia to easily hit one a moment later. Suddenly, Raquel grabbed Sonia from underneath for a Texana bomb and the win in like four to five minutes. The match had a little momentum, but even so, it needed to go two or three minutes longer. It was good because the right person won and DeVille kept up, but they have to do better and hopefully they will now with Trips having the book. Alexa Bliss fought Dewdrop on Raw. Bliss said she had no idea why Dewdrop and Nikki are friends. She said Lily is independent and makes her own money because she's number one on WWE Shop, basically explaining to the audience why she still carries the damn doll. Then she said she's coming after the women's champion once SummerSlam is over. Nikki immediately grabbed Lily to distract, later tripped Bliss off the ropes. Alexa countered Dewdrop into her DDT for the win in a few minutes. This was way too short and did nothing to get Bliss over. Not offensive by any means, but it was bad. Lacey Evans fought Aaliyah or was scheduled to fight Aaliyah on SmackDown. Lacey's entrance now included her old augmented reality graphic, like the sexy Southern Belle one, despite her new theme, despite her new gimmick. It was very odd. She compared herself to the famous American heroes from Boston and got heat with a Tom Brady reference. She did her wake up, work and win slogan and got good heat. Then she blindsided Aaliyah with the women's right for a third straight week with no match. As I said last week, not delivering an Aaliyah match is not going to anger me. Lacey is getting legitimate heat and she's doing a really great job with this gimmick. I love the takeoff of Kurt Angle's three I's, the three W's. This was good once again. And the match was made officially official for next week. It's definitely going to happen. And lastly here, uh, the Maximum Male Model segment was not part of the show as originally promoted. Max Dupree was not in attendance. Maxine Dupree did appear for a short promo package backstage, and it ended up being Sophia Cromwell, who has been working in a go-nowhere angle with Von Wagner and Mr. Stone in NXT. Maxine now said she's the director of talent, and they would debut the Beachwear Collection next week. This was a very smart call-up by WWE. She's got me saying, hey now! She is a great fit within the group. She literally owns her own fashion brand. Even her promo was solid with the same intonation of Dupree. That all worked. With Max not at the show Friday and not promoted for the segment next week, I initially thought he was taking some personal time because something happened. Reports are that he's been removed for the gimmick and ruffled feathers backstage. He didn't change his social profiles and he also tweeted, so what did I miss on Saturday? This also, don't forget, all happened before the creative change with Triple H. So who knows? Dupree, the character, completely worked backstage in those interactions with Pierce, but he was way less successful reading off a script in the ring. Maybe he's part of it. Maybe he becomes LA Knight again. Maybe they do a third character and he just completely refreshes himself. There's also the possibility of a release that does exist out there. Hopefully that's not the case because I think we can all agree that LA Knight, Max Dupree, he can make shit work on the mic and he can get over in front of an audience. And hopefully with Paul Levesque in charge, he gets an opportunity to do that, whether it's as Max Dupree, LA Knight, or someone else. Okay, so let's close up the good, the bad, and the ugly and move on to the WWE SummerSlam Ultimate preview. With that, we are going to welcome in vintage Chris Vanini, finally joining the show from New Orleans, Louisiana, one of my favorite cities in the country. 
Uh, Chris, unfortunately, did not have the opportunity to join us for the first half or two thirds, whatever you want to call it, of this show. But because of that, Chris, I wanted to ask you two quick questions before we get into the SummerSlam Ultimate Preview, just so everyone has a baseline knowledge of where your head is at going into SummerSlam, and then we will have more time to discuss your takes on these topics next week on our Tuesday show coming out of SummerSlam. The first, of course, is Triple H not only being promoted to Executive Vice President of Talent, which we did discuss on that Friday Instant Reaction show, but the big news from Monday, Triple H being elevated to head of creative in WWE. I just gave an extended, exceedingly long take on it. Really quick, what are your overall thoughts? Personally, I think it's good. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure you went, like you said, I know you went long on it. All, all, yeah. my, my only thought was... Like two this, thumbs up and a smile. Good, this, good is, this is what a lot of us have been calling for for years. And I, I have, it gets me excited about what it can mean for future talent. I think what we saw Monday with the Alpha Academy versus Dolph Ziggler and AJ Styles. I don't know if that was Triple H or not, but my first thought was, wow, Chad Gable is really getting an extended look here after really not doing much for the past month plus. Maybe that was Triple H, maybe it was not. But we know he has a good eye for talent, and I'm excited for what it could mean for a lot of different people. Definitely agree with that, Chris. But we were not necessarily here, although I did very much care about your opinions. We were not here really to talk about that. We are here to provide our listeners the getting overheads with our signature WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. And for any first-time listeners of the show, let me just explain to you how this goes down. Vintage and the Silver King, Chris and I, we break down every single match on the card. We tell you what happened in the go-home moments on television. We discuss the match. We finally give our predictions. And at the very end of the Ultimate Preview, we give our pre-show expectation grade. All of you, the listeners, get to vote on your pre-show expectation grade by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and voting in the poll before SummerSlam this coming Saturday. But we kick it off here. We break down the card from the low card all the way down to the main event. And then on Saturday, once SummerSlam is off the air and we do an instant analysis, we flip the script. We start with the main event. We work our way down the card with an instant analysis podcast to explain to you and break down and, and provide our takes on everything that happened on one of WWE's biggest shows of the year. But this is the ultimate preview, not the instant analysis. So we are indeed starting with the low card. And Chris, we need to start with the newest match announced for SummerSlam, which happened Monday night on Raw, officially the ninth match on the show. We have the Mysterios against Judgment Day in a no disqualification match. Now, I wish we could just immediately talk about that match, but a ton happened on Raw to set this up that we need to break down first. So the key, one of the key moments on the show was the Rey Mysterio 20th anniversary celebration. This started with a really long video package. The Mysterio family arrived in a Maybach Benz. He got thank you, Ray, and you deserve it chance. And he said he never could have dreamed of wrestling in WWE, traveling around the world, making money, and having legendary rivalries. He talked about breaking barriers as a smaller wrestler, and a Latino who won at WrestleMania 22. He thanked Dean Malenko, Conan, uh, Batista, Kurt Angle, Edge, and Eddie Guerrero. Obviously, that got huge. Eddie Chance, it made Ray cry. He told Dominic he's proud of the man he's become and that he's going to represent the family legacy going forward. Ray then praised the fans and he wrapped it up. It was heartfelt, sincere, and well done. 
And I think best of all, there was no bullshit. There wasn't like an interruption that made you groan and say, why couldn't Ray get his moment? So we moved on to the match, the Mysterios against Judgment Day. This was scheduled. Suddenly, uh, once Ray finished that extended promo, Finn Balor, Damian Priest, they entered slowly from opposite corners of the crowd to kind of stalk the Mysterios and set up the match. I thought that was pretty cool. Ray countered Razor's Edge with a Huracarana, but Balor uh, blind tagged, hitting a shotgun dropkick and a coup de grace for a false finish with Dom breaking the fall. Balor tried the Eddie trick with the chair, but Dom distracted the referee a second time so Ray could reverse it. Then they hit double 619s with Ray shaking and hitting the frog splash on Balor for the 1-2-3 to win clean in his 20th anniversary match. And I thought that was it. I thought that's all we were going to get on the show. But backstage, Ray was celebrating with his extended family in the locker room. He took a shot at Patron. He got a gift from his daughter of his original 1997 Halloween Havoc gear, the stuff he wore against uh, Eddie Guerrero. And then out of nowhere, Rhea Ripley appeared. Not just did she appear in her first return to WWE television in weeks after the injury that she suffered that we still don't exactly know what happened, but she also happened to be wearing a I'm your poppy vintage Eddie Guerrero shirt. So Ray's daughter, Aaliyah, stood up to her and she got shoved. Rhea then grabbed Dom by his mullet, dragged him outside. Balor and Priest beat the shit out of him. Balor screamed, it's my birthday. Who cares about your anniversary? Beat on Ray. That's such good petty heel logic. Priest then powerbombed him through a table. Later, trainers were checking on Ray when the guys distracted and Ripley booted Ray in the injured shoulder that he was selling. Ripley just raised the rent of Judgment Day throughout this entire segment. Chris, I just kept thinking that something strange was going to happen in the match or Edge was going to return or there'd be a beatdown, but there was no twist. And because of that, I was both relieved for Ray and disappointed in the moment. But then we got the backstage storyline, which made me appreciate that they gave Ray his full respect, his full moment in Madison Square Garden, yet they still found a way, a very smart way, to continue the story to set up the SummerSlam match. The match is repetitive as hell doing this again at SummerSlam, so I'm not particularly excited for it on the show, but I thought what we got Monday night to set it up was strong. A couple things. One... It's the Judgment Day. Want to make? Sure I don't even know what you're talking about. Number two, it is. It was Finn Balor's birthday. That was true. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's real. Yeah. So that was good. Uh, number three, I like to pretend that Rhea shoved Aaliyah Mysterio in the face because she is now dating Buddy Murphy slash Buddy Matthews. <laughs> and it yeah, back, they it are both Australian. Day. So <laughs> there you go. Goes back to that. But yeah. So uh, another thing. This was a, this was a bit a, a, a segment, so to speak, that also felt like it may have had Triple H's fingerprints on it. Absolutely, starting from the Mysterios arriving to the arena in a car, which is something I love in pro wrestling, and WWE does not do anymore. And a lot of this stuff is done on NXT. And, and you know, I don't watch NXT as much. You do. You you would know better. But they every other week, someone pulls up in a car. They basically. yes, they yeah. do this all the time, and so I, I really like that. Also, the Mysterio family backstage watching television from a normal angle. <laughs> yes. They were straight on with the TV. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was Vince's order and everybody watches TV from the side. I don't know. But, but th- that was all there. And yes, we're watching Ray's celebration and you're thinking, all right, so music's going to hit. It's going to get beat up. You're waiting for it and you're waiting for it and you're waiting for it. And it doesn't happen. You're like, oh, okay. 
And, and, and then, then he wins his match. You're like, oh, hey, a good moment for Amy. He won. That's so weird. You right, know, they, at least he got a good moment. Yeah. You know, yeah so, yeah. like, we're so conditioned as WWE fans to expect the worst in those situations. So maybe that was Triple H's call. Maybe it wasn't. But it was incredibly refreshing. And it'll take us a period of time to kind of get out of that mindset. So I, I really liked it. And, yeah, the match, it's a rematch with no disqualification. So I'm less excited about it. But that's also why it's the first match we're talking about on the show. Um, and, you know, I, off we go. Yeah, so, I mean, the booking of the match does create a little bit of intrigue with the no disqualification stipulation. Like, so Ripley's back. She's going to be ringside, one would assume. Will the Mysterios have someone get their backs? Could it possibly be an Io Shirai call-up who idolized Ray growing up and they talk about it all the time on NXT? Could it possibly be Sasha Banks making her return. I'm not expecting that. I'm just giving you examples. Someone who idolized Eddie Guerrero and is obviously close with the Mysterio family. Could Edge return and just spear the fuck out of Rhea Ripley in like an Attitude Era spot? I, I, that I don't know. You know, like how crazy would that be if he put her through the barricade or something like that? I could see something nutty happening in this match. And because there is so much unknown, there is the no DQ stipulation. And right now, Judgment Day has the numbers they also lost this last match. I'm also looking for heels to win on SummerSlam. I'm going to go ahead and pick Judgment Day to beat the Mysterios at SummerSlam. Yeah, I mean, part of me was thinking Edge comes back and they get and they get the win and that dude, we get Edge versus the Judgment Day. But because the Mysterios won on Raw, I don't think they're winning on the pay-per-view. So it, it does no good to have the Mysterios win again. It yeah, accomplishes no, nothing. It is nothing. It, yeah. I, yeah. So, I mean, my pick here is the Judgment Day. Is somebody else going to show up? I don't know. But the no DQ makes it interesting. I appreciate that uh, that stipulation. It, it creates more intrigue for a match than, than, than it would otherwise. Right. That we've already seen two times. I think both times. The first one was the Eddie Guerrero finish. And this time we got a pinfall. So it's and, and the Mysterios are 2-0 and also. So now yes. are you going to make them 3-0 and against this group that's supposed to be burgeoning and like and, and growing yeah. and, and becoming something no you have to have the heels win here so maybe they do a concerto post-match beat down edge makes his return at SummerSlam, and then they set up a match edge and balor for clash at the castle which would obviously be a big money united kingdom match i could see that happening potentially so maybe that's the move uh, but i do have judgment day you do as well winning this let's get to the two celebrity matches logan paul against the miz on raw miz and paul actually were brawling in the ring as the cold open to Raw, which is not something we have seen in a very long time when we talk about Triple H's touches on the show, or maybe mm -hmm. even Bruce Prichard uh, touches without Vince McMahon, a brawl in the ring to open the show is something that we had not gotten in a very long time. They got separated after a couple of minutes. Styles later told Logan he'll have his back if needed because he likes Miz way less than he likes Logan, meaning he doesn't like Logan, but he <laughs> hates Miz even more. Uh, Logan got a mix of cheers and boos when he started the impulsive TV. His brother Jake got booed when his Madison Square Garden fight was mentioned. When Miz didn't come out at first, Maurice entered in this hot pink leather dress with pink platform heels. I'm not trying to overuse the sound drop. I just got to tell you what I saw. Uh, unfortunately, her promo was maybe her worst in years. It was just. Really, really bad. Uh, Miz finally entered to save the whole thing. 
He said he taught Logan everything he knows, not everything Miz knows, though. Miz said Logan's not getting Father Miz or Comedy Miz, but two-time Grand Slam champion, WrestleMania main eventer Miz. Maurice went to hit him, so Logan said she had bigger balls than her husband. Champa attacked Logan. Logan got some shots in. They overpowered him with a skull-crushing finale, and then fans chanted one more time. So they're rooting for Miz and Champa here. This was just a very poor, repetitive segment and a huge failure in continuity given Styles backstage just told Logan, I'll have your back like 15 <laughs> minutes earlier and he doesn't even show up. Why? I still don't understand why they are doing a singles match where Logan is getting booed instead of an obvious tag team match with Styles giving Logan the baby face rub and then you have Miz and Champa, which they've been setting up for like two months at this point. So I don't get it. They could have done that and then done the singles match at either Crown Jewel or Clash at the Castle. So it just, it's nonsensical nonsensical to me. This was poor decision-making, poor booking, and I think the worst segment on Raw. So I liked the brawl at the beginning. Like you said, that was fresh, that was different. Liked that. But the impulsive TV stuff, like New York was going to boo him. Like, there was no chance Madison Square Garden was not booing Logan Paul. I was surprised, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, whatever it was, that that Logan Paul did, uh, did a good job of doing the basic face things and getting pretty good cheers. Mm-hmm. It's a, you, you get that a lot more when you're playing off of Miz going back and forth and he's right there. When it's just you in the ring at the beginning of that, they're going to boo you. It's just what he is. So, yeah, this was, 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 not, was not nearly as good as last week. Logan Paul's a heel, but this is this just this is what they're going for. You know, you don't have AJ Styles there as a essentially face heat magnet, you know, or give them a reason to cheer for him. Instead, it's just Logan Paul, and then that's just kind of messy. So uh, unfortunate uh, this week. Yeah, and even going into this this match on the show, you have we have two celebrity matches, and you really shouldn't be thinking that celebrities are going to go 2 and 0 over actual WWE superstars. Like that shouldn't really be the mindset coming in. But I look at this match and because they're not going with AJ Styles in a tag team match and because it doesn't seem like there's another chapter to be told in this feud and didn't Logan lose at WrestleMania? Logan and Miz? No, they won. They did win. They won. Okay. Yes. Right, Miz just attacked him afterward yes. and, and took him out. So it, it's kind of tough to like swallow the idea of Logan Paul beating a two-time Grand Slam champion. The only two-time Grand the Slam only t- And someone who legitimately did main event WrestleMania. Like, it, it's a difficult pick for me. And you know what? I'm not going to make it first. You are, because I can't decide. I, I can't decide who I'm predicting here. I think it's Logan Paul... 95%. Yeah, I, uh, unless they're going to continue this somewhere else. They can't continue and, and, I'm, and I'm not sure where or how. I don't know if Logan Paul is going to go to England or go to Saudi Arabia or, or no. something like that. So, um, no, I, I, th- I think Miz always takes a loss in these situations. The intergender matches, the celebrity matches. He, he lost to Shane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, I, the, the win at WrestleMania was stunning. So he did get that. He, he got his moment there. He stood tall at WrestleMania. So this That's is true. Logan. This is Logan Paul getting the getting the getting the uh, the revenge here. Yeah, I think you convinced me on that. It just seems strange. I mean, maybe what they're going to do is 
have Miz, uh, Maurice, and Champa all kind of gang up on him, Styles maybe does run down and get his back to just to kind of thwart the interference, which gets a face pop. Logan wins. Styles raises his hand. Maybe that is how they get him over as a baby face, despite not doing a tag team match. So maybe if they use that booking, I think it works. I'll pick Logan Paul as well, but I could just kind of see this going either way, especially since, don't forget now, Logan Paul has signed a multi-year deal with WWE. So we know he's going to be back, which would make it a situation where he could lose and still wrestle come WrestleMania, whether it's a rematch with Miz or whether it's another type of match, kind of get his win back and, and get some of that momentum. But I do agree that if you're putting him in this situation and you've had him get beat down and toppled by the Miz, not just at WrestleMania, but on the go home show, it probably does make sense for Logan Paul to win the match. So I'm with you on that. We'll go to the other celebrity match. Uh, Pat McAfee against Happy Corbin on SmackDown. Corbin blindsided McAfee at commentary 35 minutes into the show. McAfee recovered and chased Corbin through gorilla position with the two brawling until agents separated them. Back in the ring, McAfee got a bum-ass Corbin chant going before saying there's no hiding at SummerSlam when he'll put him down for good. Then he said, see you in Nashville, bitch, which was probably the single most natural bitch that we've heard any wrestler say <laughs> in WWE or AEW over the last 10 years. Like it actually felt like he just said it and it wasn't scripted for him. So I thought it was a really hot. It's not te- technically not a go home moment because there is a SmackDown this coming Friday. But for the purposes of our show, I thought it was a really strong go home moment. And then you kind of come into the match and you look at these two and you say, man, what is the right booking here? Right? Because man, Pat McAfee, his last match was a loss to Vincent Kennedy McMahon at WrestleMania. And if you want this guy to be in celebrity matches for your company going forward, he's got to get like a legitimate win on a big stage because he doesn't really have one of those. Even he, the Adam Cole match, he lost the Adam Cole he, match. He did beat Austin Theory. I know he did, but it was bullshit. With I mean, it was all kind of, it was all kind of messy. Okay, what happened? Um, so we don't, I we, think, don't re- we don't remember it. It's it's irrelevant. What happened mm-hmm. at WrestleMania is irrelevant. Is really mm-hmm. what I'm saying with Pat McAfee. Uh, what we do know is that he lost to Adam Cole. Corbin is in a position right now where like he could lose to me and it wouldn't hurt him. He's just so dragged down in the dumps with this terrible gimmick. It's go nowhere and he needs to completely be rebuilt. And I think, especially now that Trips has the book, losing to Pat McAfee is a great way for this guy to reevaluate himself and actually come back with a fresh character. So a little bit of it's hope. A little bit of it is also prediction what I think the best case scenario is, and that is Pat McAfee beating Happy Corbin. Much like Miz is always the guy to take the fall in special matches, Corbin is the same way. Corbin's the guy you put out there on the first episode of SmackDown on Fox and get rock bottomed and everything and all that stuff. And that's what I expect here. Corbin isn't going anywhere right now. He's in a position where he can take a loss. I don't like it. I think he's really talented and could be in something better, but it's been years of him like this. And it's just, it's just what he is. This is, this is his role in the company essentially. So pick is definitely Pat McAfee. There's few people who need a repackage as bad as Corbin does. Like now, a now, full top to bottom right. repackage. Now I wouldn't rule out the possibility of Corbin wins via shenanigans. They do a rematch at Clash of the Castle and McAfee wins there. Uh, definitely possible. Agreed. 
but but it, it's hard because it's a European show and we don't really know kind of what that booking's going to look like. I, I'm I'm, I'm going to stay with McAfee. I though. do hope they go very heavy European booking, like Gunther match, Finn Balor match, Drew McIntyre. You know, what I'm like mm-hmm. I hope all of those people who are from there get those opportunities and putting a Corbin McAfee rematch on that show while it might be hot for the crowd, um, you know, in the United States, it would probably take a spot away from people who in front of that audience deserve it more. He may not. I don't know what his European fan base is either. He may or may not have one. So that's that's true. He is an American football guy more than anything else. So yeah, probably not as attractive over there. Now, a couple of matches here when we try to break these down, it's, A little convoluted because on Raw, storylines ran together um, involving the Usos, Theory, Drew McIntyre. A lot of shit happened Monday night. So I tried to separate it the best I can. That way we can break down these matches individually. So the next one we're going to move to is the United States Championship match. Bobby Lashley defending against Theory in a rematch from Money in the Bank. On Raw, we had a singles match. McIntyre against Theory. McIntyre had a Future Shock DDT with Theory ducking out of the ring only to get dropped on the announce table. Theory put Drew into the post and stairs. McIntyre was ready for a Claymore when the brawling brutes ran in and attacked him. Lashley made the save. Theory ran scared. So Theory, at this point, had four matches since winning Money in the Bank on WWE TV. Three losses via disqualification, one loss via countdown. And I've been railing against that for the last few weeks. So obviously we got a tag team match. After commercial, Lashley, McIntyre, Theory, Sheamus. This started you know, right after we came back. Sheamus teased Theory about a tag. Fans chanted, we want Bobby. Lashley remains insanely over. He cleaned house on a hot tag. Sheamus countered his attempted barricade spear on Theory with a really big pumped knee to the face that echoed in MSG. Drew tossed belly-to-belly suplexed Butch into Ridge Holland outside, and then both of them got ejected. Sheamus broke a fall with a flying knee to Lashley's back and hit Drew with white noise at ringside. Theory then went to capitalize, when Dolph Ziggler distracted him at ringside and Theory tapped out to the Hurt Lock. This was like 30 minutes of pretty strong, entertaining wrestling in the first hour of Raw, but it just kind of felt uninspired. Like I said, Theory's now 0-5 since winning the Money in the Bank briefcase. And I know it's normal for a heel in a position like that to lose in WWE, but it's pretty damn repetitive. Five straight losses. Ziggler, he's doing a really good job as a distraction who might become his mentor in the future but it also felt unnecessary to kind of inject McIntyre and Sheamus into this entire thing. When one of my chief complaints about the SummerSlam card is that their huge number one contendership match is happening on the go home SmackDown and not SummerSlam itself. So them being on this raw at all just felt completely unnecessary. At least we got Lashley and theory interaction finally after a few weeks. And I do Chris love the way that theory is being featured with the briefcase. I like that he has a dozen people who hate him and want to kick his ass. But this match has been completely overlooked because the number one thing that Theory keeps talking about and teasing is cashing in the briefcase on either Roman Reigns or Brock Lesnar. So whether he ultimately cashes it in later in the night or not, this is not a spot where you have Theory, who already has a piece of hardware in the briefcase, win a title back from one of your three or four most over babyface singles wrestlers right now, given all the people that are injured. So I definitely have Lashley retaining the title. So after, after theory won the briefcase, I said, you got to build them up now. 
you know, he can't be this weaselly nothing guy. You you don't he's not going to cash in right away. Like take your time, build this guy back up. And on the mic, I thought they had started to really do that. But he was starting to lose DQ matches and and, and some of this other stuff. And then he just essentially gets his ass kicked for the entire first hour of Raw from Roman, from Drew, from everybody. So that goes back to what I was saying. I think on our Vince McMahon uh, retire, uh, retirement pod from Friday, which was, this is the time to reset Austin Theory. Have him kind of fade away into the back, reboot him without the Vince stuff, build him back up. And I think that could be what's happening here. I, I think he may just lose a bunch of matches here, and then you get Ziggler with him maybe as a mentor, and he starts to work his way back up. Um, Lashley's winning this match we said this from the beginning that it was booked it's not a match that needs to be happening Um, Theory has taken a crap ton of losses uh, but I I do think that means they're going to kind of push him away but keep the briefcase on him they have have emphasized you're the briefcase guy Roman puts the case on him you know after he beats him up Um, so they're sticking with that but I, I do wonder if we kind of are knocking Theory down to later bring them back up. I love the idea of potentially having, and we can kind of talk about this a little bit more later, but this is the theory part of the segment. Having theory feign a cash in on Reigns or Lesnar at the end of the main event and having Ziggler like run him down from behind and tackle him or super kick his head off and prevent him from doing so and kind of like calling him dumb. Like, hey, you're wasting your opportunity. I'm trying to help you here, right? Like, like playing into that role where like I'm giving you shit but in like a big brother sort of way, you know, like the problem with that is Dolph is very much being positioned as a baby face. Right. We haven't, we haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> right. Right. We're not there yet. So that would have to be a development that we get at SummerSlam. But because of the Dolph Ziggler I- introduction into this storyline and the fact that it has not been resolved by in by any means, they haven't even really done any one-on-one interaction where they've cut promos against each other or anything. So because that's lingering out there, it tells me what I think I need to know for the main event of the show that we'll talk about later. But it also tells me what I need to know here, which is, again, theory to win the title back here, it would be very poor booking for Bobby Lashley. And it would be a completely unnecessary title for theory, who as the United States champion and the money in the bank briefcase holder would be taking a lot of air out on a show that needs both of those things separate. It's the same reason we want the world championships and the tag team titles separated because we want things that matter on both programs. Combining those two into one person would just be a complete unnecessary move. So Chris, we're both here on Lashley retaining, correct? Yep, I, without a doubt. All right, let's move to the undisputed tag team championship. The Usos defending in a rematch against the Street Profits with a special guest referee. Now, there's been no story that has been built or put on television, taken more television time than this one. So we do have a ton to talk about, both from SmackDown and Raw. We're going to start with SmackDown. The Prophets entered the crowd to a huge pop and talked some shit. Theory did his Money in the Bank cash and promise again. The Usos ranted for him to get Roman Reigns' name out of his mouth. Theory joked that Montez Ford and Bianca Belair would leave SummerSlam without titles. Ford went after Theory but hit an Uso, Madcap Moss, and even besides, and the faces cleared the ring. There was a great spot where Angela Dawkins leapfrogged Moss for a huge Tope Con Hero outside. It was just a really hot start to the show from a crowd response kind of standpoint, which came out of the Stephanie McMahon announcement, which actually opened the show. 
And then the second part of this, it's a three-part thing, was backstage, Jeff Jarrett showed up in referee stripes saying it was an honor to be chosen. He also made a vague reference to the Ric Flair match that's coming up on Sunday, saying everyone wants a piece of him these days. Jarrett said he turned down some overtures, kind of indicating people tried to bribe him ahead of this match, but he cannot be swayed. He said this is the biggest tag team match in SummerSlam history. I guess they want the first crowd pop for Jarrett to be Nashville because introducing him backstage here kind of didn't make any sense, especially after making the announcement last week via video package. So I just think the Jarrett introduction in addition to this match has been extremely odd, but I did very much like the Usos and Profits interaction at the start of SmackDown. Yeah, that that was good. It's weird. If you count Raw, too, I don't think Jarrett has been in front of the crowd yet. He's only made backstage appearances, which has been weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this was a good start to SmackDown. So then we had Usos in theory against the Prophets and Moss in a six-man tag team match. Backstage, Paul Heyman pumped the Usos up for a strategy session. Ford hit an awesome frog crossbody for a near fall. Moss had a great hot tag with a release your Anagi for another near fall. Theory tried to ditch the Usos, but he got caught with super kicks. Ford did a Superman tope. Theory deadlifted Moss into a neckbreaker on his knee. Moss was totally out of position, and that just really showed Theory's strength. Moss escaped A-Town down and hit a running shoulder tackle before Theory used his briefcase for that third of however many disqualifications I mentioned earlier. Then he beat Moss with the briefcase to use suck chance. The DQ finish here, it ruined yet another really good Theory match. He had a singles match with Moss. He had a singles match with AJ Styles and a singles match plus a tag team match with Drew McIntyre and then Sheamus and Lashley over the last like two weeks. All of them ending with Theory losing. Again, three DQs, one countout and one submission or whatever you want to call it, knockout. If you don't want this guy to lose clean, don't put him in matches (laughs) where he's going to lose or just let the guy win. He does have the briefcase after all. Why not let him distract the referee, hit a briefcase shot, and get the victory. I just don't see why Theory could not have beaten Moss here after he ate three Uso finishers or something like that. It was just another frustrating end to a really hot match. But for TV, it was entertaining. It's a good match, but whenever you get that finish like that, it just it feels like a middle finger to you for getting invested in the match, especially when WWE does these so frequently. Like it's it's just like it's pulling the rug out from under you time and time again. So entertaining match and all that, but very, very frustrating end again. And then on Raw, the teams had a standoff backstage with Jarrett in the middle. He said they better keep the peace or he will remember who caused problems at SummerSlam. That's not how it's supposed to work. You don't (laughs) go into a pay-per-view match biased because of what someone did on Monday night. This is the shit I was talking about. The, the, The concept of Jarrett being the special guest referee to atone for referee mistakes doesn't make sense. You should want a more senior official who's not going to make mistakes. It's not like they have problems with double countouts and double disqualifications. The problems they had were referees screwing up so you don't bring in someone who's less experienced to do it. So I just I, thought- I, I do respect Jared, though. I think it was SmackDown when he said, though, that the other referees can't handle the bright lights. So the, like they at least tried on yes. SmackDown yeah. to like explain why he's he should be in this moment, which I respect. But yeah, then the... The bit on Monday was a little bit weird. But like my idea is correct, right? Like you would never in the NFL, you would never have officials like (laughs) screw things up and say, you know what? Let's put former players in there. They'll do a better job officiating. You would never do that. 
No, but you do have former players and fans and everybody say all the time that they could do a better job than that ref they see on TV. So. Yeah, but the, but the organization doesn't do it for a chance, for, for the Super yeah. Bowl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but, you know, that's that's professional wrestling. Why do special guest referees exist at all? I know, I know. I know. <laughs> well, for, for other reasons, for enforcement or for this or for that. You know what I mean? Because they're part of a feud, maybe. Not because well, that, the other what, referees screwed up. That's what Jarrett was doing on Monday, though. He was being the enforcer. But they didn't need that. That wasn't a problem for them. That's what I'm getting at. If if that had been the problem, if at Money in the Bank they got a double disqualification, then it would make total sense to do it. But that wasn't the book. Yeah, making Charles Robinson look bad was not great, which right. we've been over. All right, so we had uh, the Bloodline versus Riddle and the Street Profits. This was a six-man tag team main event for Raw. Before we get to that, got to shout out Corey Graves for this incredible line. The Street Profits want the smoke. Riddle knows exactly where to find it. Fantastic line. Uh, So we got the six-man match. Riddle entered to a really big pop. He was the last one to get introduced for the match. Reigns hit Ford with a huge Uranagi for a near fall. The Profits went on a nice run. Riddle took out both Usos with Exploders, Brotons, and a springboard floating bro outside on a hot tag. Reigns tagged in blind for a Superman punch on Riddle. The Usos took out Ford before Dawkins pounced them into the timekeeper's area. Reigns then absolutely murdered Dawkins into the steel steps. Riddle caught Reigns with a draping DDT to a huge pop, but Reigns escaped an RKO and came back with a spear for the expected win. This was Roman Reigns' first match live on Raw since September 20th, 2021. Ten friggin' months. And I think it was his first appearance on Raw since the go-home-to-WrestleMania backlash if memory serves. You could feel the difference in the show with Reigns there and actively wrestling. It was a great go-home moment, even without Lesnar, and Reigns over Riddle was really the only finish that made sense because you didn't want to include the tag team members as they have a match at the pay-per-view. It also did raise the rent for the tag team match because it kind of reminded you, wow, look what the Usos and the Profits can do. Holy shit, I remember their match at Money in the Bank was so good. I can't wait for SummerSlam. So this was extremely successful. I thought it hit all the right notes as the go-home for the tag team match. Yeah, I mean, go figure that having your champion on the show and wrestling makes makes the show better. What a novel concept in professional wrestling. I think the company should look into doing that more often. I mean, also, going back one second, you talk about Roman Reigns hadn't been on, on Raw in forever. I saw someone point out this was Jeff Jarrett's first uh, Madison Square Garden appearance for WWE since SummerSlam 1998. So, wow, that is <laughs> wild. But again, he wasn't in front of the crowd. It was backstage, which I didn't understand. True. Um, yeah. But yeah, this match was a uh, main, main event was fun. Like this is this is a good raw go home main event, you know, type of deal. Obviously, you would love to have Lesnar in it, but you, it's Brock Lesnar, so he's not going to be in it. Um, Roman looked great. Crowd was hot. Guys got to shine. Correct finish. Loved it. Awesome, awesome way to close the show. Now, as for SummerSlam, obviously we need to make a prediction here for the match. And it's just really difficult, right? Because it's tough to know what WWE's plan is with the Bloodline and with the undisputed WWE Universal Championship. Is this a scenario where they want all of the Bloodline to lose the titles over the course of a show or a couple shows, for example, WrestleMania? Do they want to take the titles off the Usos and have that be like the crack in the foundation of the bloodline? And then Roman Reigns eventually loses his titles to someone. You know, 
the direction that they're going to go with this is difficult to kind of project. I see only two different ways the Usos lose the championships at this point. One of them is at SummerSlam to the Street Profits. The second is to RK-Bro. Whenever Randy Orton returns, they go with that. However, Reigns is kind of in a position now where if he does retain the title against Brock Lesnar, he is still in need of opponents. And Randy Orton was obviously supposed to be his opponent for SummerSlam, which means the original plan was for Roman Reigns to retain the title at SummerSlam. As such, I think perhaps they do something where if Randy is healthy enough, they put him as Reigns challenger at like the Royal Rumble. So they still have a really big main event for that show against someone who maybe is not going to cost Reigns the title. Of course, that's assuming that Reigns is still champion at that point. So I'm, I know my answer here is getting a little bit convoluted, but I'm trying to explain my line of thinking for, well, who exactly could take the championships off the Usos? And because RK-Bro is not formed right now and Randy Orton seems to be a TBD in terms of when he's going to return, and because it does not seem like there's any other legitimate tag teams right now on either roster that's built up in any way to take the titles off the Usos, this is a spot where they can have a huge babyface title change at SummerSlam. And I think they take the advantage of that. I believe the Kayla Braxton, um, hey, I heard you guys might hate each other. That bullshit that she pulled may have been a red herring to make us think like they were going to break up the Street Profits and then actually swerve us and have them win the titles. So therefore, especially with the special guest babyface referee, I have the Street Profits beating the Usos and becoming the new undisputed WWE Tag Team Champions. We talked about this last week, which was where are the babyface moments going to come from on SummerSlam? Three of the five champions coming into the show are faces. The two heels are the bloodline. Mm-hmm. So, like, where are you going to get that moment? Is it just is it going to be Logan Paul or Pat McAfee? Is that going to be your big thing? I I'm I don't I'm not picking Brock. I doubt where either of us are picking Brock. So that kind of leaves you uh, with you this. You don't know that. You don't know that. Okay. Well, spoiler alert for me. Um, as I've said for weeks, <laughs> uh, this this feels like what it is. They've really built up the street profits here for the past few weeks. Make them feel like a big deal. They threw out that literally you guys are feuding line, mm-hmm. but like you said, this they've gotten a ton of TV time over the last few weeks. They've really hammered home. This is a big match, a big feud. And I, I think the, the bloodline's kind of been nothing for a while now because Roman's never on TV. So I think the Street Profits win, get their big crowning moment. They, they, they've been tag champs before, but how much, what, what have they done as a tag team really? What have been their biggest memorable moments? Like that was it. This could be it. Yeah. This this is probably it. They they don't really have one of those yet, you know that, and 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 so this feels like they get their moment here. I don't know how long they're going to hold the titles. Maybe they break up while they're champions or something. I don't know, but I I do think the street profits here are are the, the are the the big babyface moment we get on this. Show. And I do think that if you put the titles here on babyface, it's a great opportunity for Clash at the Castle. You can team up Sheamus and Butch and have them as the challengers ready-made for them. You know, a UK, a couple guys from the UK, Street Profits, boom, really good match on a United Kingdom card. So everyone's really happy. So I think there's multiple reasons to put the championships on the Profits. I also did want to note 
they've spent the last two shows, SmackDown and Raw, really pumping up Angelo Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And he, number one, he deserves it. Talk mm-hmm. about improvement over the last two years. Angelo Dawkins is maybe number one in that book, if not number two or three. Um, but the fact that they're putting him over, they're saying, hey, look, this is not a one-person team. This is a very strong tag team that we want you guys to be prepared for if they go and take down the Usos. Either that or they are doing a split and they're trying to do the best they can to make Dawkins strong as a single in addition to four. I don't think it's that. I think it's the former. We're on the same page. Street Profits winning the tag team titles at SummerSlam. We also have Seth Rollins versus Riddle on this card. This is the final non-title match uh, that we will discuss here on the SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. After the main event of Raw, the six-man main event that we just discussed, Rollins entered for the first time on the entire show. He briefly stared down Reigns. He waved bye-bye to him as he was walking past. Then he attacked Riddle, obviously, driving steel steps into his head and hitting a stomp at ringside. Then he put Riddle on upturned steel steps with them leaning against the bottom piece of the steps. And he stomped his head once more directly onto the steel below to end Raw with the MSG crowd, by the way, singing his theme. (laughs) This match has really not had a lot of build. So it's unfortunate that they didn't get promo time earlier on Raw, especially they're two of the most popular people in the entire company. And we didn't see either of them. Uh, Riddle until the final 20 minutes of the show, Rollins until the final two minutes of the show. But this is going to be a work rate match on SummerSlam. And I'm not sure that even if they did get promo time or a backstage interaction, it would have accomplished that much at the end of the day. So we're talking about it. Where are the big moments going to come from babyfaces on this card? And this has the potential to be one. I can legitimately see this going one of two ways. Either Riddle wins, gets his win back after losing consecutive matches to Reigns. Rollins doesn't get hurt by it because he's lost to everyone for the last like year and a half, right? It never wins anything, yet he's still super strong. Or WWE uses this as a catalyst to send Seth Rollins back into the main event, potentially as maybe the person to take one of the titles or both of the titles off Reigns. You know, I don't think that's going to happen. I lean more towards getting a huge babyface pop at SummerSlam again because Rollins can absorb it and just brush it off his shoulder with ease. So I do have Riddle beating Rollins in this singles match. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to say Seth Rollins because where where did, where did these guys go next? Riddle already had his world title match and he lost and he can't fight for it again, essentially, against Roman. So he's kind of, I don't know where he goes from the here, win or lose. Seth is a guy who, you know, he's, you know, he beat Roman technically at Royal Rumble. He's, he's, he's wanted his shot. He should get that shot. He went 0-3 against Cody Rhodes, right? So, like, yeah, he's got to get some wins back somewhere if you want to do something with him. Uh, Both I do, think though. I think he, yeah, yeah. But I, I think Rollins has has a higher ceiling just at the moment because of Riddle's Roman situation. So I'm going to say Seth here. I, I think Seth needs to get back on track and go with Rollins. I do think this is potentially the least predictable match on the show. Oh, absolutely. And I don't and I don't think that they can go wrong either way because Riddle can absorb a loss to Rollins and Rollins can absorb a loss to Riddle. I just want to give me a banger. Give me a five-star match and I'm happy. Mm-hmm. With a clean yep. finish. 
sorry, let me add that addendum with a clean finish as, as we always like. Yes, please clean finish. In, in this era of DQs and countouts, uh, the first pay-per-view post Vince, a big <laughs> show, I have to think we're not going to get it. Yes, clean finishes, please. That is the, the name of the game. Uh, SmackDown Women's Championship, we have Liv Morgan against Ronda Rousey. On SmackDown, footage was shown of how Rousey actually injured her knee at Money in the Bank, which I really don't think they showed before. And it gave nope. really good perspective to why Liv Morgan decided to cash it in when her knee wasn't just worked on by Natalia, but she actually banged it on the floor, which I thought was cool. Backstage, Rousey said she likes Morgan and did not blame her for cashing in, but said she would win at SummerSlam because you're Liv Morgan and I'm Ronda Rousey. She gave her a death stare and wanted a handshake when she wins the title, just like Rousey gave her. Liv didn't guarantee a win, but she said she loves it more than Rousey. She wants it more than Rousey, and she needs it more than Rousey. She also promised to shake her hand, but she would do so as champion. Other than not being able to hear Ronda for like a third of her promo, which happens all the time when she gets going, mm -hmm. this was actually a pretty well-scripted segment to set the tone for the match. It's really smart to keep them backstage because if they put them in front of the crowd, fans would have booed Ronda because Liv was there. I know Ronda yep. gets face cheers, but next to Liv, she's going to get booed and she's going to probably get booed at SummerSlam. So I just liked the way they set this up. They didn't need to do too much. The storyline is very simple and obvious. And they gave us enough animosity to go into it saying, okay, I am curious to see what WWE is going to do. I agree on it being a very good uh, promo segment. When, when Ronda was basically like, you're nothing, I'm Ronda Rousey. I was like, eh, that's a pretty good point. But Liv responding with the, I care about this more than you do, like, boom, that's it right there. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> like, that's exactly what it is. None of this... I, I know I'm the underdog. I'm going to prove you wrong type of stuff that you did before. No, just I care about this more than you do. I'm like, all right, I believe that. Like that got me into it. So um, it, it was good. It was a good setup. It, it put everybody in a good spot to succeed. And yeah, good job. Now, when we talk about unpredictable, I said uh, Riddle and Rollins may be the most unpredictable. This is kind of in a sneaky second spot because Chris, you know, our minds take us one way, right? And that is Ronda Rousey winning the title back after one month mm -hmm. and just negating everything that we got with Liv, just like they negated everything we got with Nikki Ash, with the difference being people actually badly want Liv Morgan as champion. They wanted her to win Money in the Bank. They want her as champion. With Nikki, it was cool that she got it and people were behind her, but they didn't really care that much, right? And I think the pessimist in us, the... Vince has the book pessimist is Ronda Rousey wins the title back. And after the match, what happens? Charlotte Flair returns, stares her down, and they have a match at Clash of the Castle. Like that is the booking in your head where you go, oh my God, <laughs> typical, like 0.0. .0 I hit all the buttons. I do the whole thing. And I don't necessarily know for this SummerSlam. I said this earlier in the show before you joined me. I don't know that the booking for SummerSlam will change from what the plans were. Right. You know, the, the creative process with Triple H taking over, it needs time to unfold and making drastic changes ahead of one of your three biggest shows of the year is probably not the best idea. You can change maybe how things are booked on the show itself, how you get to a victory, how you get to a loss, but changing plans drastically is probably not a good idea. So, you know, depending on what happens in this match, it's going to be very tough to say, well, that definitely was the, wasn't the plan. They changed it. 
or that was definitely the plan the entire time. We were not going to know these things until we find out after the fact when someone does a tell-all or there's interviews or whatever the case might be. I happen to think, despite WWE, even under Vince McMahon, making a lot of really dumb booking decisions a lot of the time and not listening to their fans and basically ignoring what people want. I really think they would have to be true idiots to take the title off Liv Morgan here. I I truly do. She is over like Rover. The fans are obsessed with her. She is getting massive pops. Her title win and her cash in, uh, I'm sorry, her winning money in the bank in the first place got a ton of positive PR from WWE with the fan base. And to just kill her after four weeks to give the title back to Rousey, who, by the way, has said in interviews she doesn't even want to be champion because she doesn't think she needs it, which, by the way, she doesn't. Just like Brock Lesnar never needs to be champion. Goldberg Mm -hmm. never needs to be champion. Ronda Rousey doesn't either. Occasionally fine, not consistently. So I actually believe, Chris, that the planned booking is for Liv Morgan to retain the title. How that happens, is it a Charlotte Flair return that distracts Rousey and helps Liv? Maybe. Is it something with Bailey? Maybe. Is it Liv catching her in a schoolboy or a roll-up or a pinning combination? I think that's the most likely. I am actually going to pick Liv Morgan to retain the title against Ronda Rousey. You mentioned a thing there that I think is going to be my pick, which is Liv retaining via Charlotte interference. And I, I, you're right. I don't know if I don't, I, it's really hard to see WWE deciding Liv Morgan beats Ronda Rousey clean. You know, like we've seen Ronda Rousey, Alexa bliss and what that was and how that was a complete right, squash. Right, right, right. So, don't see them being, oh, yeah, Liv Morgan here can totally stay in the ring with Ronda Rousey. So what I think happens is Ronda fights on top for a while. Liv hangs in there, hangs in there, hangs in there. Charlotte comes out, distraction, Liv wins, and, and we move on to Charlotte. Ronda can do their thing, and they can do it without a title, I think. So that's going to be my pick. That's the key. They can have that feud without the championship involved. And we Mm -hmm. say that all the time about many WWE feuds, but guess who has the book now? Trips. And again, I don't think that this will change based on what they plan to do, but I do believe that in this particular situation, they know that taking the title off Liv Morgan, I hate to use the term, is bad for business. It was really bad and stupid for them to take it off Big E and give it to Brock Lesnar. And this would be a very similar booking to doing that. I agree. Totally. All right, let's move to the Raw Women's Championship. Bianca Belair defending against Becky Lynch. On Raw, Belair didn't even get a word out of her mouth when Lynch interrupted and entered. They kept cutting each other off trying to do promos. So Becky just got pissed and punched her in the face. They did a really long knockdown dragout brawl. Byron Saxton asked a very appropriate question. Why is no one breaking this up? <laughs> and I have no idea because the officials run out to break up things in two seconds. Lynch dragged Belair over the ropes by her braid, put her into the post. Belair speared Lynch over the announce table with Lynch's shirt tearing open in the back. For a storyline that's kind of been talked to death for a year, they've done a lot of jawing at each other. I don't know that they could have done anything else on the mic. So to do a brawl like this, it was probably the only thing they had left to build the match at SummerSlam. And I did think it added some heat. 
you know, it's a rematch from, I guess, technically last year's SummerSlam, but more importantly, WrestleMania. And we kind of come into this with a similar train of thought to the Liv Morgan Ronda Rousey situation. The difference being that Bianca Belair has now had this title for a few months, but she had the last title for a few months when she dropped it to Becky Lynch unceremoniously at SummerSlam last year. So I don't exactly know why you would have Becky win it one year later in a, you know, not the same situation, but a similar situation and have them be one one and one against each other unless you were going to run a rubber match back at WrestleMania. But that does not seem to be the plan. The plan that most believe is happening at WrestleMania is Becky Lynch, Ronda Rousey for a title. A title that, by the way, Rousey would hold going into that match. So that kind of makes me reconsider the Liv Morgan pick before, but it doesn't really change my pick here, which is Bianca Belair retaining the title. They cannot give her another four-month or three-month title reign and have her lose to the same person that beat her last time. I, I, I just, it just would be really poor decision-making. So I have Belair winning. They can bring Charlotte to Raw. They can bring Bailey to Raw. They can elevate Asuka. Rhea Ripley was number one contender and still deserves a match. Alexa Bliss on Monday night said she wants to challenge her. There are plenty of people for Bianca Belair to fight. Becky Lynch doesn't need a title. You know, if I was booking the damn territory here and you wanted to have Ronda hold the title as Becky chases her at WrestleMania, I would have Bianca versus Ronda Rousey. That's a money match we haven't had. And who knows how much longer Ronda wants to do this or, or whatever, but that's a match you got to book, whether it's the draft or the shakeup or whatever yeah. come fall. Uh, you could maybe see that happening, maybe at Royal Rumble. Uh, next year. And that would be a legitimate person to take the title off of her. Yes. Her or Rhea Ripley, both legitimate. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go, I guess I'm going to go Bianca just because I don't really know where either of them are going at the moment. And that does, that doesn't lead to make me want to have a title change. Becky is not coming in with some kind of momentum here or some, or some, uh, blood feud here. It's been a weird two months for her, largely in part because of the Sasha Banks stuff and all the plans that got ruined there. I, th- we we were hoping for a Becky Oscar SummerSlam, non you know no no title involved match. We didn't get that, so I'm gonna say Bianca just because I don't really know what you do with Becky if she wins. Exactly, and I think Bianca has plenty of places to go still mm-hmm. as champion. Becky Lynch it would be very repetitive, even. With this gimmick, it would be repetitive for her to be champion again and just fight up and beat a bunch of baby faces. She already did that. Don't forget. She had that run from SummerSlam all the way through WrestleMania where she beat every baby face on Raw mm-hmm. with the exception of Bianca Belair. So what are you going to do? Go back and do that again? No, I think to your point, a really good move would be to possibly switch Becky over to SmackDown or Ronda over to Raw in the draft. And then you're naturally creating that feud. You figure out a way to get the title off one person or another. You could have Becky Lynch be the one to beat Liv Morgan for the title is another way you could do it and have mm-hmm. Ronda be the one to challenge her at WrestleMania instead of the other way around. There's there's a lot of different options they have, but taking the title off Belair here does not seem to be the best case scenario. And Chris, that takes us to our main event of the evening, the undisputed WWE Universal Championship, Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar one last time one last match, we hope, last man 
standing. So we'll start with SmackDown, then we'll go over to Raw. SmackDown started with Theory mentioning Lesnar's name as part of that Money in the Bank promo that he always cuts. After the six-man tag that we mentioned earlier, Lesnar's music hit and Theory looked scared shitless in the middle of the ring. Lesnar paced like ringside, stalking him like an apex predator. Then he had a F5 to a massive, massive pop before beating the ever-loving shit out of Theory with the briefcase to the point that he dented the briefcase, which we saw again this Monday that the briefcase was still dented. Uh, Brock also hit a second F5 on Theory into the briefcase in the middle of the ring. It was a great segment. It got a mammoth reaction from the Boston crowd. We may not be pumped for Reigns Lesnar, part 82, but the crowd really loves babyface Lesnar. He's over as hell. And this was a really great moment, especially coming out of the rumors and reports that he walked out of SmackDown. We weren't sure if he was going to be there. To have him be the last thing that we see on that show, it was really a great, again, it's not technically a go-home show, but for us, it's the go-home moment for Lesnar leading into this pay-per-view. Right. You got to remember, it kind of was a shocking appearance because of the reports earlier in the day that Brock had walked out. So the the crowd popped for that too as well. Uh, By the way, that video on YouTube, 2.1 million views. Nice. Just enormous. Yeah, I love Cowboy Face Brock. You know what I would have loved? Cowboy face Brock against anybody else. In a non-title match. <laughs> Doing something other than Roman Reigns. We, it, ha, has he done anything other than... Okay, no, we had Lashley at day... What, what was Lashley wrong? So Lashley had the Goldberg match at Crown Jewel that was a non-title match that we were very excited about. No, no, I'm thinking what else has Brock done? He won, he won the Brock, title at Brock day has one. not had a match in WWE. That was not for the title or a Royal Rumble or Money in the Bank ladder match since the 2018 Survivor Series match with Daniel Bryan. Oh, man. Oof. And that was the only match like that. And he was the champion. That was title versus title. And that, that was title versus title. Um, or, or, um, not, not champion versus line. champion it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Champion versus champion. Um, yeah, he, I'm like going through this. And the one before that that he had that was not for a title was the same match against AJ Styles at Survivor Series 2017. And I'm still scrolling. Another Royal Rumble. He had Brock Lesnar Goldberg at Survivor Series 2016. Um, Yeah, so here it is. Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton, SummerSlam 2016 is the last Brock Lesnar match on a, you know, pay-per-view or TV that was not for a title, in a situation where it couldn't be a title match, where it was champion versus champion, or a Royal Rumble or Money in the Bank. The last yeah. regular match that Brock Lesnar had, had on nothing to do with the title. Had nothing was, to do with it didn't involve yes, titles at all. Was in 2016. And that was the one where he where he where he where he hit Randy or broke yeah. him open hard. It ended right? by referee's decision. Yes. Yeah, that was correct. Cool. So yeah, I just like, you know, Brock Brock, he there was day one, there was Elimination Chamber, which is kind of interesting. I'm just like I, I'm just, I want to see Cowboy Brock do different things, but this is all they do with Brock. I'm sure Brock only wants to come back for this, but I'm just, I'm surprised that considering clearly here how much Brock is putting Roman over from the MSG house show when he, when, when Roman bloodied him to mm-hmm. losing at WrestleMania to now this match, which again, spoiler, I'm picking Roman. 
I just wish Brock would have kind of used that energy to put some other people over, <laughs> yeah. you know, if we're not going to get much of them. No, for sure. Well, let, let's talk about what happened on Raw and then we'll get to the match itself. So Raw basically started with the bloodline in the ring. Reigns did his normal acknowledge me promo. He got tired of talking. So Heyman took over and he had a great line making fun of a sound guy who kind of screwed up his mic got cut off. He said, hey, man, maybe you'll be the next one out the door, which got a huge reaction from the MSG crowd, very smart crowd knowing about Vince McMahon. Then he ran down all of the streaks Lesnar has ended in WWE before saying Reigns would ensure that Lesnar is not part of his legacy any longer coming out of Saturday's show. Heyman said Reigns will do anything necessary to keep Lesnar down as it's their last match ever together. It was an expert level go-home promo from Paul Heyman. You could not expect anything less from him. And the fact that it was in Madison Square Garden only was a cherry on top. Theory obviously responded to this. He entered, he repeated his money in the bank plan. Reigns coerced him into getting into the ring. Reigns and Heyman agreed theory. He's cool enough, but he has no idea what to do with the briefcase and needs counsel. Reigns said, your daddy ain't here anymore. And that it's his ring, referring to Vince. A fucking incredible line. Great timing. And I don't know if you noticed this, Chris. The Usos had to turn and cover their mouths. They laughed so hard. So did Paul Heyman. Heyman, yes. Heyman did the same. I have no idea how Reigns didn't crack up dropping He it. He popped himself. He started to grin a little bit like after after he said it. He, he knew he couldn't turn around like that, but he grinned a little bit. It was exceptional. The crowd chanted, Daddy's gone, and then, Who's your daddy? Very loud. Reigns said he'd be Theory's daddy if he keeps screwing up because he runs the garden now. Reigns tapped Theory on the back as he kind of left the ring. Jey Uso did the same. Theory got angry that Jay did it, hit him with the briefcase. Jay went to attack, but Reigns stopped the Usos and just kind of told them to leave the ring. Now, after the matches that we broke down earlier, the two that involved Theory, Theory ate stereo super kicks from the Usos on the ramp before Reigns put the briefcase on his chest and told them to be smart with it come SummerSlam. This whole thing, this opening segment, it was literally perfect. I have no notes. It was probably the best start to a WWE TV show, the best start the entire year. Heyman got the crowd roaring. He put over the opponent, uh, Lesnar, very strong. Reigns kind of put over Theory. The crowd was on fire. It improved the confrontation, having the crowd behind Reigns and buying into everything he and Heyman were saying. Literally, the only way this could have been better was for Reigns to drop the daddy line. Your daddy ain't here anymore. And for Triple H's music to hit and him to come out and say, actually, I'm your daddy now. The place would have imploded if he did it. It would have been such a great WWE moment, but you can't expect that to happen. It's a SummerSlam build. It wouldn't have made any sense, yeah. No, of course it would have made sense. He's the booker now. Everyone knows it. Everyone in that crowd knew the news today. And that's... It would take it away from it would take the it would take it away from theory, which, which is, is why it didn't happen. Not to mention yeah. the fact that I think the line was improv by Reigns in the first place. I'm just ah, telling you, yeah. for me, the only way it would have popped me more is if Triple H came out and did that. But Chris, the point is, I loved yeah. every single second of this segment for sure. By the way, I don't think it was. Uh, I, I do think it was scripted. Because I don't WB, know, man. WWE posted it on their socials. Like they, they were like really leaning into it. I don't know, dude. I don't think you. I don't think you drop a line like that, even if you're Roman Reigns. If if, if you're not supposed to talk about it, you're not, you don't talk about it. 
So I, I don't. Not, not supposed to talk about it. Heyman mentioned he, it three minutes earlier, knowing that Roman was about to say it. In my, uh, I don't know. My, I don't, I don't think point. either of those lines were scripted, honestly. The, the Heyman one was not. No, that was because the, the mic was not working. At first, wasn't working when Roman talked. He said something, and something didn't catch. He hands the mic off to Heyman. It again doesn't catch, and then and he does this thing. I, I think the fact that Heyman said that it lends even more to the idea that I think it was scripted, which is fine. It's an anyway, amazing line. Yeah, I'm not taking. Away, I don't mean to take away from it. It popped me huge. I went nuts for it. I again, I took a screenshot of Roman grinning while the Usos were smiling, and Paul Heyman had turned around. It's an incredible line. And and whether they thought it would go over that well or not, I'm curious if Theory's going to get daddy chance now wherever he goes like which is not a bad thing technically because it's it's something um although i don't know if they want to keep having vince mcmahon kind of in the storyline vince mcmahon's absence as the storyline um but this was great uh, overall loved it theory by the way again doing a really really good job of the little things you talked about him looking scared shitless when brock showed up on smackdown when he gets in the ring with roman on raw he again looks not scared shitless, but nervous as all hell. Like he doesn't like he realizes he shouldn't be there. He doesn't deserve to be in the spot. He he looks and he looks like he feels small in that moment, which is what he was trying to do. It went over great. And then for him to hit the Usos and then Roman to be like, nah, he ain't worth it, man. <laughs> like that that is an incredible amount of disrespect of theory. And it goes back to what I said earlier about how like they really kind of made him look like a chump uh, SmackDown, the end of SmackDown and the beginning of Raw. But I also don't think that's a bad thing. I think right now we where you can you can start the character development of Austin Theory right here with, well, with the way he's being treated. So, well, they're also awesome they, they are kind of making him look like a chump, but they're also kind of respecting that he has the briefcase and is a threat. Because if he was a chump, you don't come out after that match to double super kick him and have Roman taunt him and put the briefcase on his chest. So yeah, Reigns is looking down on him, but Reigns mm. is the tribal chief. He's look he, he looks down he on looked, almost everyone he faces. Exactly, exactly. And I'm so saying, it I'm, fits. yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in in theory, sold that well. He didn't be like, oh, I'm mad at you. I'm gonna get you, Roman. It was like, oh, maybe you're right. <laughs> right. Like, don't beat the shit out of me. Like, I already <laughs> had that on Friday. I'm, yeah. I'm done with this. Yeah. So no, theory's doing a good job, and I think the rub, even if he's getting the shit kicked out of him, the rub of being in the ring and around yes. Lesnar and Reigns, and all, and by the way, all the other people he's feuding with. He's feuding with 12 people right now. It's literally wild what Theory's doing. It is rubbing off on him, and it's getting, he gets massive, legitimate, real heat, and that all transpired since Money in the Bank. He did get heat before it, but now it's nuclear heat, and it's all because of the work that he is doing against all those other guys. But we're not really here to talk about Theory, at least not yet. Let's get into the prediction for this match. Chris, you've already given yours, Roman Reigns. And yes, yes. I'm, I'm with you. It's Roman Reigns. Like, again, the planned match for SummerSlam was Randy Orton. And one has to assume Roman Reigns was going to retain over Randy Orton. So I don't see why you would kind of hotshot a Brock match, which was a fill-in replacement situation. I don't know why you would do that and then put the title on Brock Lesnar. The fact that they are calling it you know, one last match. Was it, what is it? One last match, one last time. One last Sorry, match, I, I, I last inverted those. Total. I inverted those. One last time, one last match, last man standing. Is it going to be their last match ever? I would not bet a single dollar on that. <laughs> but they are calling it that right now. 
And if they're calling it that right now, and Roman Reigns is your 700-day champion, he's the head of the table, he is your number one guy in your company, and yeah, he's not showing up consistently, but he still is showing up a hell of a lot more than Brock Lesnar. It does not make a shred of sense to take the title off of him in this moment, especially, Chris, because what have we talked about? When Reigns loses that title, it should be to put someone over. Ideally, we thought, hey, it might be someone like a Big E, right? Or maybe it'll be Cody winning his first world title when he comes back, if he wins the Royal Rumble and does that whole thing. Um, It could also honestly just be like Seth Rollins, like re-establishing him as a main eventer or Riddle or any of these people. My pick Drew McIntyre next week. Drew McIntyre to reestablish him as that number one baby face, which he was supposed to be two years ago. And and he was two years ago, by the way. But the pandemic kind of stunted his public, how much of a public face he was of WWE. To put it on Brock Lesnar here would be wasting a 700-day championship reign. So I can't see it. I do have Roman Reigns winning and retaining the title. The bigger question that kind of lingers over this, and I think this is one of the reasons why they're pushing it so hard, is does Theory cash in? Not does he attempt to, because he will attempt to. I think we probably both agree, like, it'll be teased at a minimum. Does he cash it in? Does the bell ring? And does he win? Is he successful at beating Reigns or Lesnar? I'm going to go ahead and guess he threatens and teases, does not ultimately cash in, and therefore, obviously, gets beaten down by one of them. Reigns ends the show standing tall as the champion. Yes, I also think Theory will attempt to cash in, but won't. Maybe he walks out there and, and observes the match and waits and decides not to. Maybe he's going to go do it and Brock wakes up and F5s him and, and, and stands tall at the end of the show after Roman has left. But, you know, I, I think back to WrestleMania and, you know, I was down on the floor for that final match and it was a, it was a big scene and everything. And the match was a real letdown. You know, we were waiting for The Rock to show up or or something. And we don't think they called any audible. It was a surprisingly short match. Their matches continue to get worse and worse uh, among them. So I'm curious with the last man standing stipulation, which you and I generally hate, Mm -hmm. um, because it kind of takes away the opportunity for a climactic moment. I'm curious how that will go. I'm curious how violent it will or won't get. Um, so I, I'm intrigued in the match and kind of how it will play out. Um, I'm probably also going to be nervous in the back of my head that Brock's going to win <laughs> and like <laughs> and just bracing myself in case that happens. But I just I, I I don't see it. 700 days. Look, we can debate if the Roman reign has been a good one or not. You can you can honestly make a case for both. But at this point. Brock is the absolute last person who should be taking the title off of it. Basically, so, yeah. Basically, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I'm going with Roman. And I am going into that final match with some curiosity, but but that's about it. I will say, just because we did not really mention the stipulation, and I'm glad you brought it up because we did gloss over it, you're right in that I normally rail against the last man standing stipulation because it ruins the climax. You're standing there counting to 10, waiting for just the numbers to count up to 10 while someone's laying down, right? And generally not a lot of crazy stuff is happening. I do wonder if they have a really creative finish in mind, something like the Usos shackling Brock to the ring post and him not being able to get up 
you know, I, I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but Heyman has stressed in his promos, Roman Reigns will do whatever is necessary mm-hmm. to make sure Brock Lesnar is down for a 10 count. I mean, that could be running him over with a car or the old school forklift spot where you no, trap someone <laughs> under the forklift. I love that yeah. when they do that in a last man standing match. Um, Although it'd probably be hard in a football stadium show. Though. Sure. Or burying him, you know, burying him alive, right? Under like a pound of dirt or a cement truck. Like there's a million different things that theoretically you could do to make this work. Not necessarily in the stadium, obviously. That'd be backstage in the parking lot, which wouldn't be a good way to end a pay-per-view in front of a stadium crowd. <laughs> Nevertheless, my point is, they could figure something out to make it interesting and almost excused for Lesnar. And I do kind of believe that's what's going to happen. I don't think Reigns is hitting five spears and a Superman punch and Lesnar is going to lay there for a 10 count. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to get a really unique, interesting finish. The question is, are we going to love it or are we going to hate it? It's going to be one of the two. And I don't know which it's going to be. You're right that their recent matches have been very disappointing. They have put on good matches previously. Mm-hmm. And hopefully because this is the last one, it is not just finisher spam after finisher spam. I am totally fine if it's a hardcore match. I'm totally fine if there's blood and it gets you know rough outside the ring and in the crowd and all that. I just don't want 18 F5s and 27 spears and someone laying there for, for a 10 count with nothing happening. You, you, you really got, if this is the last match, you got to have them leave it all on the line. You're right. I'd love to see them both bloodied. Like this has to feel like the end. Yeah. The great, the, the the biggest match in WrestleMania history did absolutely not live up to that no. tagline. So you got to get it right this time. Now, if it is last match ever, that's not a stipulation, right? It's not like it Roman is not. Lo- it's no. not like if if Brock loses via shenanigans, he gets another. No, he, it's, he it's, doesn't it's, get another shot. I'm just it, wondering. It's a tagline. It's a tagline. If it is, if yeah. it is the Usos holding him down or something like that, he's gonna have a case for another match. So, so that's that's what I'm not. I, again, that's why I'm I'm intrigued. I, I am intrigued by the stipulation and how they go about it. So yeah. I do give them credit for that, even if I don't think Brock's going to win. The way they've built it and the way they've built it has at least added a level of intrigue that when this was first announced, and we were like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do to replace Randy Orton, and it's just Brock Lesnar. We're like, oh my god, are you kidding me? We're cu- I, I s- said it then, and I believe it now. I suspected that coming into the show, you and I were going to feel better about the match than we did then, which we do. And I think we're optimistic that it'll at least be booked well enough where we can come out of it saying, okay, that was satisfying. Hopefully it's over. But even if it's not, you know, it was a fine enough replacement for a match. And as long as that's what we get, I think it'll be pretty okay to end the show. But Again, we're going to have to see what happens. I really don't want a Theory cash. In theory, you know, beating Reigns for the titles with money in the bank, it's not the worst way to get the titles off of him or to cash in and win one of them and potentially split them. There are certainly worse bookings that they could do, but Theory in this particular case, it doesn't really seem like he should be the one to do it, even though it would be a young guy beating Reigns for one of the titles. And, And it would fulfill a lot of my requests for the way that a money in the bank briefcase should be used. It, it would, but you know, we, you, we know that WWE loves to kind of beat down the briefcase winner before he cashes in, but no briefcase winner has ever been beat down so much so quickly. Probably. Like Austin yeah. Theory has right That's now. true. That's very true. Now, Chris, that is the full ultimate preview for WWE SummerSlam, but we still have to give our pre-show 
expectation grade. This is what our belief is in terms of the quality of the show going into it, obviously, before we've seen any matches or any booking decisions or anything like that. We give the pre-show expectation grade now. We give the post-show grade in our Instant Analysis podcast as soon as SummerSlam goes off the air. A reminder one more time for all of you, if you want to vote with your pre-show grades and your post-show grades, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We will post polls before and after SummerSlam where you will be able to participate and we will read those grades live here on the show as part of our discussion. Chris, I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, grade the show first, as we always do. So go ahead. What is your pre-show expectation grade for SummerSlam? As I look at the card, I think, how many of these matches am I really looking forward to? Not, not that I don't think it won't be a good match, but like I can't wait to see that. And I think there's only two of those. The Usos and the Street Profits and Riddle Rollins. The, the, the Usos and Street Profits gave us a five-star match the last time we saw them go against each other. Riddle versus Seth is kind of a new matchup. That'll be fun. But the rest of it, we've got rematches. Becky Bianca will be a great match, but I'm not like thrilled to watch it like I was going into Mania because Bianca's the champ. Lashley versus Theory rematch, don't really care. Mysterio's Judgment, the Judgment Day rematch. I already think, I already think Roman's going to win against uh, Lesnar. That's a rematch. The celebrity matches are new. I think they'll be fun, but they're they're low stakes. So I'm gonna say B plus because it doesn't feel like like it's, like we said doesn't feel like there's an opportunity for a ton of huge moments other than that tag match that we both predicted. Um, it'll be a fun show. I think there'll be a lot of good wrestling. I think the celebrity matches will be fun, but ultimately in terms of what matters, what's going to change coming out of it. I don't think a ton is, so I'm going to say B+. Yeah, we give a, you and I give a lot of B plus and B uh, pre-show expectation grades, and I think one of the reasons we do that is because we want to leave room for it to exceed our expectations and vastly exceed our expectations. If we come in with an A expectation grade, 95% of the time it's going to fall below, right? So we want to be reasonable when we go into a show like this where what have we been talking about for the last month on this podcast? The build to SummerSlam has been disappointing. It's rematch heavy. There's two celebrity matches out of now nine matches on the card. Most of what we are getting are rematches in some form or another. Here are the legit. There's nine matches on the card. Let's count the rematches. Ready? Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, the Street Profits and the Usos, uh, Austin Theory, or sorry, Theory and Bobby Lashley. Judgment Day against the Mysterios. The Judgment Day. Becky Lynch against Bianca Belair. And that's five. You technically could say Liv Morgan and Ronda Rousey, but it's not. So there are five rematches and two celebrity matches. That's seven of nine. We've either seen before or don't really have stakes because it's involving celebrities. And for a card like this, a SummerSlam card, that's just not good enough. It's not. This needs to be... A storyline heavy show where you're coming in rooting for baby faces to get certain moments and for certain things to happen on the show, grudge matches to end and all this type of stuff. And it's just not that. So I can't go into a show that's been booked this poorly, I guess is the best way to put it, and have a a pre-show expectation grade in the A range. I'm also not going to give any extra credit to the creative change because it's too soon to do that. So, you know... Where do I stand? 
this is my thought on the entire process. The Some of the biggest matches on the show could deliver in major ways. I mean, mm-hmm. Chris, there's three matches on this card that theoretically could be five-star matches. Riddle Rollins, Becky Lynch, Bianca Belair, Street Profits, and The Usos. All three of those can absolutely bang. And the other ones all do feature either really good wrestlers or at least people who I'm very curious and interested to see. But here is what I have noticed. These are the people not on the SummerSlam. I was going to say this. That are healthy, okay? Uh, AJ Styles, Asuka, Rhea Ripley, who technically just came back, but she is healthy. Edge, Drew McIntyre. As of now, Shinsuke Nakamura and Gunther, maybe that match potentially gets added. Kevin Owens, who was injured and just came back. Sami Zayn and New Day. And, and I, I Sheamus. And sure, Sheamus and those guys too. I, that's not even a comprehensive list. I didn't go down mm-hmm. the rosters or anything. That's just off the top of my head. That's a shitload of star power to not be on the show, to not be yep. able to figure out a way to get styles on this card or Edge. I know he's doing the vignettes, but we thought he'd come back. McIntyre and Sheamus in a number one contendership that could just definitely be on the SummerSlam card. That to me is all disappointing. So because of all that, it's a long way of me saying I cannot get anywhere near the A range. I was thinking A minus. I can't get there. So I'm with you. I have a B plus pre-show expectation grade for SummerSlam. And I do think because of match quality, because of potential surprises in the main event and elsewhere, this show has a legitimate chance to over-deliver as many WWE pay-per-views and premium live events have recently and get into that A range. But I can't start there. I'm at a B plus. I am very much looking forward to SummerSlam, and I'm excited to be able to bring you guys full coverage of it, as we always do for every WWE and AEW pay-per-view here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So just a reminder of what's coming up here on the show over the next few days. We will be back Thursday, not only with our AEW and NXT show, I will also be talking about ROH, Death Before Dishonor. I did get a chance to watch that this past week, but the key is Saturday. On Saturday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, the Silver King Vintage, we will have a live WWE SummerSlam pre-show for you on Twitter Spaces. All you need to do is follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can join in, interact with us. We will give you a last-minute preview for SummerSlam. We'll talk about stuff that happened on SmackDown, if that changed anything. Go over our final predictions and answer your questions hear from you guys all live on Twitter spaces. I love interacting with you guys. It is a ton of fun. Of course, we'll have the pre and post show polls on Twitter, so don't miss those. But as soon as SummerSlam goes off the air Saturday night, Chris and I, we will crack a cold one and we will hit you up with a WWE SummerSlam instant analysis podcast that you will have in your ear holes either before you go to bed or first thing in the morning, depending what time you go to sleep. So you do not want to miss the top tier professional wrestling audio content heading your way from the Getting Over Wrestling podcast throughout the end of this week and really every single week, but especially through the end of this week. Thank you once again to Vintage Chris Benini for joining me for this WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. Thanks to all of you who were with us for the entire time before Chris joined the show for our huge breakdown of Paul Levesque taking over WWE Creative, the good, the bad, and the ugly from everything across this past week on SmackDown or Raw, one of the longest shows in our history. I appreciate 
all of you giving us your ear holes. And I appreciate, as always, those five-star ratings and reviews. So I will remind you once more that this podcast... So drop those ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The reviews on Apple. And once again, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So great to bring you all this WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview for Vintage. This is the Silver King finally ending this episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast with three final words. Bye for now.